Hello, and welcome to the No Good Poetry Podcast. Each week we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of poetry. This is episode 48 with Joseph Makos and Joseph Bievin. This is the good, bad, and the ugly, isn't it? There's some ugly shit out there, kids. Let's make the world safer for poetry. Yeah, here we are, back at the Codex on St. Claude, in the midst of a giant mass of bibliophilia. <laughs> we have our uh, special guest, traveling poet, typewriter poet, currency converter, bookmaker, extraordinaire. Currency converter, I like Yeah. Ben Alshire. Welcome, welcome to the show. Welcome, yeah, welcome man. No good hey, Josephs. <laughs> I'm a big fan. I listened to a, a whole bunch of the shows this fall, so cool. it's nice. It's nice to be here with you yeah, so we're here, you know, we're here talking about, I think, you know, one, I, I have to say, like, you know, one of my muses, I would have to say, is travel. And there's something about travel, about being on a moving train, or being on, uh, being in an airport, being in a weird environment, like a foreign country where you can't even read the signs in the street, Yeah, that caused, like, for me, some sort of activation of some deep creative you know, flow. So we're here today to talk about travel and poetry and Ben's travels and historic travel poems and things like that. So, uh, but maybe before we get into the travel discussion, do you want to just give like a, Oh yeah. Tell, tell our audience just a a brief, a little bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah. I'm I'm based here (laughs) in New Orleans. Um, and and have been for about five years. I grew up in Vermont, been writing since I was a teenager I basically started traveling instead of going the sort of traditional route of going to college and stuff like that. So I would work a bunch of weird jobs, travel around the world. And that's where I started writing poems from having these sort of surreal experiences, you know, hitchhiking through Latin America, doing something strange like that. And then in my 20s, I started playing in bands. And so I started traveling in the States and and then in Europe as well with the band and uh, kind of an integral part of that or by necessity was playing in the street in order to make it like financially viable. Yeah. Yeah. So then in my mid twenties, I started doing the poet for hire thing, which was a really natural thing. You know, I'd been busking for, you know, almost a decade already. So combining those two parts of my life was a really, was a really natural step. And that's what has allowed me to travel so much with poetry, you know, without the income from the street, from traveling from place to place, I wouldn't be able to, to do that, you know. Where did you start that? Like in uh, Vermont? Yeah. The first place I did it was at a farmer's market. So I signed up to, or I applied for a table. This is so in Burlington? Like, or? Yeah, in Burlington, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it'd be like cheesemonger, vegetables, <laughs> poet. Yeah. And I was running a small press, uh, doing like a letterpress magazine, and um, then we, expand, we won a grant, like books and stuff. And so there'd be all these different books of poems on the table, and I'd have a typewriter, and it, people had never really seen anything like that there. Um, it's been happening in New Orleans for decades and decades, from what Nancy tells me. Um, but in Vermont, no one had ever really seen anything like that, and so it was very kind of a novel, interesting thing, and it worked. It worked really well. And that was the first time I was like, "Wow, I could actually this could this could be financially viable." The thing, you know. Did you ever take it to like a big city? Did you ever take it like up to Boston or do do anything like? Because I'm just curious how people would have received that. Burlington seems to be like a pretty cool, you know, I, I've been up there a couple of times, like, you know, going yeah. to school. We, you know, we both went to school in Massachusetts, so right. explored New England, but like, 
Did you ever go over to like Boston or Providence or like, you know, like I think, uh, New Orleans was the biggest place that I took it in those early years. Yeah. You know, um, really it, uh, and in Vermont, it is such a small place. It really only worked because the farmer's market is just like such a thriving scene. There's like yeah. thousands of people. It's just like, oh my God, the farmer's market. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a really kind of, it's a social packed. thing. It's a social it's thing. Packed. People walk around, all these liberals, they have like a role in the same way that people have like a role on Royal Street. Yeah. You know, they're there to buy a bunch of stuff. Those are, those are no spray heirloom tomatoes. I'll have all of them. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, because it's like it's also like the climate down here is right for it, you know. In so much as like we have a you know it's a tourist economy down here, but I think part of it is it seems like you need to have a foot traffic kind of atmosphere. Yeah, That's yes. why a farmers market That's is perfect. Definitely. But big cities tend to not have the right place for that. It's not impossible, I suppose, but at least in America, maybe in other places, I could see that working better in Europe or something where there is a lot more of a walking no around way. Kind no of way. Washington Square Park even just Columbus Ave in San Francisco right in front of City Lights oh like, I could see San Francisco even, working yeah that makes that's sense that's not even but, like a pedestrian yeah. area or anything yeah. it's just like a sidewalk and there's not even that many people there but I guess because of the kind of literary heritage of that yeah. zone in North Beach like probably a lot of the people are patrons of City Lights but San Francisco studio. for a big city is pretty pedestrian -y. I think there's a yeah. lot of people walking around compared yeah. to most big cities. Yes, yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, like, yeah, you, 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 okay, so yeah, place yourself outside of City Lights, or like, you, you, you also did it, like, what, uh, in front of Shakespeare Company, Shakespeare yeah. and Company, too. So those are, like, uh, literary vortexes, so to speak. Yes. You know? That's, that's really kind of been what I've been going for. It, it just works so well because all the, or a uh, uh, majority of the people walking around are literary pilgrims. Some of them have traveled across yeah. the whole world. They've come from, you know, they live in Thailand and they love, you know, Pound and Hemingway and whatever. And so they've come to Shakespeare and Company as this sort of pilgrim. Mm -hmm. And so when they see someone there with a typewriter writing poems, it kind of like um, manifests this sort of uh, connection, this sort of fantasy connection kind of thing, but in like a real way that they can participate in and interact with and stuff. Does that translate into kind of different literary interests for different cities, kind of based on what they're known for? Yeah, man. Like in San Francisco, in North Beach, it's such a, it's just very much, I mean, there's still people alive from that generation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Lawrence Frangetti's like almost 100. Uh, Jack Hirschman was someone that I would see around, um, not just in the street. Like, he walked by one day and just, like, set up a poetry reading outside City Lights and saw me and was like, want to be a reader? And just, like, invited me to be sure. one of the readers. And uh, But then, you know, I would see him later that night at Specs, this bar across the street, or at mm -hmm. Vesuvio. There is still a real, like, North North Beach kind of culture. It is, like, much older. There's there's not as many, like, younger, younger people, people coming yeah. in because it's, it's really, yeah, I was really fascinated by that sort of thing because um, it really seems to operate on, like, rent control. Like, you have to kind of marry into, like, some Italian family with a rent-controlled apartment in North Beach to, like, be able to live there. Yeah. And if not, you have to be, like, a tech bro who pays, like, $5,000 a month. It's almost like one or the other or something, you know? But yeah, young, but younger poets in San Francisco are probably living somewhere else, not... Well, you know, I think that <laughs> people people really respond to, like, sincerity there. 
because there's a lot of bullshit going on. There's a lot of like fetishization of beat, yeah. you know, beat yeah, kind of definitely. Stuff. And so if you seem like you're actually really a dedicated poet, people would respond so well. The first night I got there, uh, this last time, this fall when I was out there, uh, I went around to a couple of the bars, and I'm not joking, no one would let me pay because I said I was a poet. And because they had <laughs> seen me in the street writing poems for people. I was so amazed by that. I was like, there really is this, uh, it's still real, you know, it's still yeah. going on. Yeah. And Jack Hirschman's kind of like setting up shop and there'll be this like all these sort of like uh, followers or sycophants or whoever like kind of swirling around him and asking for his advice. He's like this godfather, you know, oh, what about that anthology you mentioned? Like, da, da, da. there's all these people, you know, hovering around him. It's kind of like, uh, yeah, I thought it was really interesting. But is it, do you think, I don't know, I think that San Francisco scene is, is interesting now. Mm. Is it kind of frozen in time in some way? Maybe. Yeah, because then obviously there are younger people, and so when I was out there, I, I set up, um, yeah, I set up a reading with a friend of mine who's my age that I met at uh, the Breadloaf Conference, who just lives in San Francisco, uh-huh. and she runs. Her name's Rita Bullwinkle. Her book uh, Belly Up is about to come out. It's a book of short stories, and she just hosted. She hosts salons at her house sometimes. Yeah, which is such a great thing, and it was really nice. She invited all her friends. It's packed and everything, and that was kind of like this glimpse into a non beat related scene like these are these are young you know literary people coming up in the scene and everything you know Mm -hmm. and um there are more official things going on like you know bookstores maybe um, yeah yeah bookstores are always a good Um, but are they you think maybe trying to purposely separate themselves from that beat scene in some way i would i mean i don't speak for them but i would be like (laughs) yeah definitely Because it is, like, really goofy and ridiculous sometimes. There's this guy that came up to me, and he was, like, he was maybe 70, which means he was, like, already a generation and a half away from Lawrence Frillingen. Yeah. But he was just to the hilt, like, hey, man, I could get you a reading, man. Like, what's your name? I see you just got into town. I could help you out. You know? <laughs> like, he was just grooving on this, like, uh, beatnik vibe. And he was like, I run the like beat museum across the street, and I'll, I could maybe book you and all this stuff. And uh, and then he's like, uh, I know Larry. He's a good friend of mine. He's very sick, you know. And I was like, Oh my god, you know Lawrence Frangetti? And did he's you, like, Did you play? He's, like, he's like, Yeah, hold on. And he he calls Lawrence Frangetti on the phone, and he's like, Hey, Larry, go bow socks. And then he hangs up, and he has a bow socks hat on. <laughs> I was just like, that is weird enough to maybe be real. But then I went into Vesuvio and had a drink. And I was like, hey, you know that guy? And they had seen all this happen. Like, the bartenders at Vesuvio, <laughs> like, they, they see everything that happens. Yeah, it's right next North door, Beach. yeah. And I was like, is that guy... And before I could finish my sentence, I was going to say, is that guy for real? And before I could finish the sentence, she was like, no. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, Okay. I was like, he said he runs the Beat Museum, like, oh, the Beat Mausoleum? I was like, oh. (laughs) The Beat Mausoleum. I was like, damn. That's fun. So does he go around pretending to call Lawrence Frilinghetti every time he sees someone new on the scene? Probably, probably. He puts on this little act. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that kind of makes sense, right? He's he's a couple generations behind the perfect age to probably idolize them. Yeah. intensely right like where they were just yeah. a little bit ahead of him yeah 
But even the eccentricity, I feel like my association with San Francisco is some eccentricity, you know? And so I find, I found it like delightful. I probably yeah, wouldn't yeah. like go hang out with him for eight hours, but it was really delightful. The first time I ever wrote poems in San Francisco, before I'd you finished got- setting up my table, this guy was like, want to smoke some meth? Sure. And I was like, oh no, like I'm cool. Just like knee jerk reaction. Like, no, like I've never, you know, I've done a lot of drugs, but I haven't like. <laughs> done meth like yeah. I don't even how do you do meth do you shoot it do you sniff it do you, I don't even There's know a bunch of different ways all of the above yeah <laughs> and then uh, I basically thought that he was I assumed he was going to take me into an alley and then rob me which is why I said no no but then we like hung out for a minute and I realized that it, it was, was, lur- was it was absolutely <laughs> just like yeah. I'm just kidding hey man like what's going on cool typewriter one I got some I got some meth want to smoke some meth you know and I was like wow I probably should have just like tried that you know like why not just once it's not gonna you know well it might could have been fentanyl but uh right, like we right, never know but right. yeah no <laughs> no I, 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 I right you know there's probably tons of people living living up that 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 whole beat. Oh, probably, thing. Yeah. Just like people live up the French Quarter here. I mean, I think it's the mm-hmm. same thing. It's like their sort of like cultural mm. currency, you know? But then at the same time, I think City Lights is still going good and, and yeah, publishing yeah. good stuff. Yeah. But it doesn't seem like they're discovering anything more anymore. Right. They're publishing new things by people who are right. already kind of established, which right. is fine. And it's still good stuff, you yeah. know? But They're keeping the flame in this big way. Like, you wander around and it's like, radical socialist French literature from, like, early 20th century. Oh, and know, there's, yeah, their stuff like, in translation is uh, yeah. amazing. They have yeah. the best collection yeah. of that stuff. I mean, yeah. So much, can I tell the City Light story? So I was like, you know, Bill Lavender, I designed, once upon a time, one of the first things I ever designed was this crazy broadside with this, like, Eye of Ra, and Bill has it up in his house, and you can spin yeah. it on a Lazy Susan, and it's like, you can read the poem from four different directions, and he actually got it mounted on the wall. So he had a reading out there uh, a number of years ago, and he had the broadsides with him, and the the, the, man, the people who were managing City Lights were so into this broadside. It was like, mm. oh, this is so cool, we want one of these. Great. So Bill had it framed. And he had it set, and he had it mounted with a lazy Susan, so yeah, they could yeah. hang on the wall, and they could you could spin it to read wow. it, to read it, you know, you know they put it on the wall and they mounted it, and it was like you know when you you know when like the reading room is upstairs, you know you take yeah. those little stairwell to go up. So I went there to see it, and I was like, oh hey, I want to see this broadside design, Bill. You know, supposedly it's on the wall of City Lights, and I went there. I talked to the guy Peter, who's the manager, and he's like, funny story. And I'm standing at the counter, right? And he's like, funny story about the, that broadside. So we had a reading about three months after we had mounted it. He's like, and he, and he showed me. He's like, it was right there. Like, he walked through the door. It was right there. there were, during a reading, somebody had left the reading and ripped it off the wall. Wow. They stole. They literally took Lazy the, Susan and all. Yeah. Yeah. He said they ripped <laughs> the, the, the framed piece and everything. They ripped it right off the wall. When they came down from the reading, it was gone. Wow. Huh. And I was just like, that's so weird that that would happen. So I immediately, te- so I'm standing there talking to Peter, and I'm, I'm like texting Bill, right? Like, what happened? And right then, a black SUV pulls up to the front of the door, the front door, like right to the front of City uh-huh. Lights, and these two, two big guys walk out, and then a third guy jumps out after him, and the door flies open, and I'm standing at the counter, and I look over at the door, and, and right there, at that bookshelf, Johnny Depp walks in. Huh. <laughs> and I just was like, 
looking at Peter, and I was like, and I was like, hey, and he's just like, hey, and he was talking. Yeah. He talked in Italian with his bodyguards. He was with his two bodyguards that were carrying wow, that Italian. were that were carrying like yeah. strapped. Yeah, and he was speaking in Italian with no his shit. with Is he his Italian. I don't know, but he's I know he speaks huh. French, Italian, and stuff like that. No, so he's like sp- speaking in his like Italian, and I'm just like, what? The? And and Peter was just like, yeah. Yeah, dude, that that yeah, that's exactly who that is. So I was like, maybe Johnny Depp, maybe Johnny Depp still the still the broadside. <laughs> well, still I don't know. I, I think this is a future episode idea. I want you to start researching. The mystery. Of I that. want you to solve the mystery of who stole the broadside. And yeah, who stole out. the broadside? Right. <laughs> Scour eBay. Well, it's just funny. But I, I, I finished texting Bill. I was like, hey man, your broadside got stolen from the wall of City Lights, and he just responds with one word: cool. It is kind of cool. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like the respect for like the weirdness of the thief of doing. Yeah, that. yeah, that was like, like cool, man. Yeah, great. That. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. But anyway, but, but yeah, but so, but you just got back from some recent, pretty extensive travels. Yeah. Uh, how was that experience? And um, it was really wonderful. I I went to some places that I've been before, like city, like um, Shakespeare and Company. Mm-hmm. Which was sort of inspiration for City Lights. It's a big connection there. Yeah, yeah. They were like uh, I forget Army Buddies or something. George Whitman and Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Um, Ferlinghetti came over and saw Shakespeare and Company. I think he painted City Lights above the door, and then he went back to San Francisco and like started his own bookstore, kind of based on it. But uh, yeah, so I went back to Paris. That was really nice. It was by then I had made some connections and stuff, so I didn't have to actually like live inside this like. Bug ridden store. Is it? <laughs> well, it's you know, it's it's, uh, it's very bohemian. You know, it's like it's mysterious. They've had you know, they have like problems and stuff. I mean, it's like thousands of people passing through there all the time. Yeah, I don't know if it was like bed. I don't think it was bed bugs, but I definitely like, would wake up itchy every morning. Well, and I would be like, "Did you get any bites over the night?" And they'd be like, "No, no, no." Well, there's like those little, there's like those little bugs that like come with the paper too. Yeah, well, there's that, Maybe, but I don't yeah. know that they bite people. I don't yeah. think they do actually. They just. But I think when you're bringing in that many used books, yeah, you're bringing all kinds of stuff with yeah. you. You know, is it just like something you can just show up over there and be like, "Hey, I need a place to crash tonight. I'm a poet." Um, it used to be because when George Whitman was alive, he was like the epitome of like the beat, total eccentric. He wouldn't cut his hair with a blade. He would only burn his hair with a candle, and it would fill the bookstore with this rank odor of his grossy hair. Um, but he was this like you know strange genius kind of guy, um, really passionate. He would like love you one minute and then like fly into a rage. Like he was this he was this real, um, but he was extremely generous. So it was always like there was this little stove with uh, like a giant pot of like foul stew that he would like feed all the hungry poets and stuff. <laughs> Just there like, are all these like strange legends, like that you know. There's this little gas well in the middle of the floor, which, by the way, he paved with like shards of tombstones that he stole from Père Lachaise what? cemetery. <laughs> so you're like walking on the shards of tombstones. But there's this well in the middle of the floor, and they would have poetry readings there. And if it was like really going good, you know, he would go outside and grab some brush and light it on fire. And run into the bookstore and thrust it into the well where he had adjusted the gas to just have like a, a really thin trickle, and it would like like erupt in this like flame, and you know, yeah, he was a total sounds crazy. Yeah, he was kind of a wild man. It's a good um, way to burn your bookstore down. So since I guess what 1951 or 53 until he passed away in maybe 2011, 
there was one writer described it as um, every night, every inch of the floor is carpeted with Swedish hippies. Okay. Was like how it was described. Like there might be 30 people sleeping head to toe every single night. And so the French authorities got involved, like, you know, we need to know who these people are. And that's where the, the tumbleweed system, as they call it, evolved, where in order to kind of give lip service to these French authorities' demands, in order to stay there, you would have to work like an hour or two a, a day, and you'd have to write a one-page biography of yourself. Okay. And like, you know, with like... Your name, what do your parents do, where are you from? And so they, they have like 30 or 40,000 different people's biographies upstairs in, huh. their, uh, in their thing, yeah. But now, since so, so then he passed away and his daughter Sylvia took over. And um, she's really, really amazing. And, and she, she also has maybe like a, a little more business kind of sense. Like her father was extremely anti-capitalistic to the point where he would take thousands of francs and just hide them in books and put them on the shelf randomly. So you, you could buy a book there and there might be like a thousand francs inside and you could walk out. Um, or, you know, he would let like drug addicts come in and like steal books and sell them back to him and stuff like that. You know, people would steal from him and he was just very like, you know, money is not really, which was so beautiful. But then the, the story was always kind of like in financial, um, straights or something his daughter came in and really whipped everything into shape like she's just such a she's kind of a rock star um she dresses like the the little prince he's like long flowing like coats and she has this like halo of golden curls and she's just like striding around the cobblestones it's so yeah it's pretty it's pretty amazing um so now there can only be like four people at a time oh okay because so there's like a couple actual spots and so it's very, like, spot-related. Like, if all the spots are filled, then you can't stay there, and you have to wait until someone leaves or gets kicked out. <laughs> it's probably a better system. In some and ways, you can get kicked out yeah. if you do things like bring brush fires into the store, <laughs> or, uh, cut, your yeah. hair with, cut your hair with a lighter, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. steal uh, books and sell them back to the store, put money in books. These are mm. all the things you... You can't do basically everything that her father did. Do they still? Yeah. I get kicked out. It's been so long since I've been in Paris. Do they still have all the the cart booksellers? Oh, the, on, along the, the river and yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I always thought that was cool. I don't, you don't, you don't uh, mm -hmm. get that in many other places. And it's not all. I mean, some of it is kind of touristy, but a lot of it is, yeah, really niche stuff. Yeah, it's whatever that person is interested in, and yeah, absolutely not yeah. tourists at all. Like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and then there's like one guy with like the porn in the back, <laughs> and it's like really, really nice, like 1920s, you know, I don't know, where it's type porn or where something. it's 90 percent like, text. You just have to read the yeah. erotic story, or like old yeah, vintage <laughs> photographs and stuff. Yeah, it's like people gambling and stuff on the Seine. Yeah, it's pretty, it's wonderful. So what were the so if you had to say what are the what were the highlights of your of your travels to you? Mm. Well, this time, uh, yeah, I was in Paris, but I also did, um, I kind of, yeah, into the, so if I'm going to be in a few different places, I'll try to set up a few different things in each of those ones. And so I did a, yeah. an art residency, um, it's more art related than writing related in Hamburg in Germany, mm -hmm. um, with the, this group called the Peace Paper Project, um, which is a really wonderful group of paper makers who, um, started out working with this group called the Combat Paper Project. 
that uh, is, is pretty well known. They're like vets from the second Iraq war who came back with all this PTSD and anti-war sentiment. They like stripped off their uniforms and threw them into the beater, the, which is the machine that makes paper and uh, uh, created paper and then from books the uniforms, and then yeah, yeah. Wow. wrote poems as a way of healing themselves. Um, That's neat. Yeah. So I was working with one of the originators uh, of that project he kind of split off and formed his own. And so I was, uh, yeah, living in Hamburg for, for a couple weeks right before the G20, which was pretty interesting because the entire city was strung with anti-capitalist banners and everything was spray painted. Everything had a sticker like, you know, no G20, fuck AFD, like, you know, because uh, the right-wing yeah, parties yeah. are, they're at like 20% now or something. Yeah. And, in Germany, so it's getting really intense, uh-uh. and people were preparing, like, you know, black bloc armies of anarchists were, like, preparing to fight the, you know, the police and everything. Um, it was pretty intense. Even the art boutique storefronts were selling, like, slightly glossier versions of, like, fuck the G20, basically. <laughs> and there were anti-Trump posters everywhere. Oh, I bet. Totally obscene. Like, yeah. completely obscene. Um Trump with, like, these nipple rings, like, sucking Putin's, you know. Um, yeah, they really, like, don't hold back. The media, too. Like, on the cover of magazines, it'll be, like, Trump with, like, Hillary's tits and half her face or something. And yeah, that's, yeah. like, how they're kind of approaching our political moment. <laughs> sure. Yeah. That's fascinating. Which so I was supposed to see... Because yeah. we look like idiots to them, you know. Yeah. Really do. So I was mostly, I was actually mostly doing bookmaking and paper making and uh, various kinds of printing. I got to print letterpress at um, the Museum der Arbeit, the Museum of Work, where they have basically like every machine that's ever been made or something. Crazy. And uh, they have open hours for typesetting. And so I went huh. in and just started like pulling type and they were like, oh, and they didn't, they didn't speak a word of English and I don't really speak any word of German. And so... Um, we had this totally surreal non-language version where they basically helped me print an entire edition of my book, like at, in these open hours, these guys were like, oh, that's cool. I opened this case and I had like handmade paper inside that I brought to print on. And they were like, Whoa, yeah. you know, handmade paper. And they're feeling it and asked me all these questions that I didn't understand. And yeah. they basically like jumped in and just kind of like made it happen. These magnets was really strong magnets. Yep. So they don't lock up anything. No, so that's it's like, what do you have? Boom. And they like print instantly. I, I, I've seen a lot of print shops that do that. I want to do that They now. just drop in magnets. Yeah, there's a... There's a I, I, I know like two seconds. Yeah, Amazing. no, exactly. You just Wait, drop I, I've used... I'm, I'm, I'm missing it. They're dropping magnets underneath what? the... Ch- into the chase? What they do yeah. is... Uh, no, no, yeah. no, no I, I've done it. Oh, I, I, have, I, have, I, have, I have those high-powered magnets. I, I've done it with this press right here. You just... Instead of having to put a bunch of furniture in and then locking it up with coins... You just like drop them. Oh, uh, you're using you magnets to. Okay. You just drop them. Magnets. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah, Interesting. It's so, oh. it so funny that the German like lack of sarcasm and sense of humor was really interesting. Like, there was one guy that kind of spoke English, and the press at one point, like the the grippers, like stopped functioning, where like the paper wouldn't be released at the end of the cycle. It just and you had to like rip the paper out, and it kept happening, kept happening, kept happening, and he kept like apologizing and stuff, and I was like. It's fine, you know. Um, you know, you'd be like, it just won't let go. You know, and I was like, it's okay, man. You know, I had an ex girlfriend like that. Yeah. And he was like, what? 
What are you talking about? Yeah. You know, he was like so alarmed, like, you know. Um, yeah, they're funny. Well, I mean, you know, for you know, sometimes for people, like, they can't, you know, they don't, they don't, there's a sense of humor there that doesn't translate into the, uh, yeah. into German specific. It's very literal there. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so You're Paris, in- Hamburg. Um, what else? What else? Then I went to Berlin. Well, I flew into Copenhagen. Um, and so I stayed there for like a long weekend. Did you go to Christiania? I did. Um, the people I was staying with, I was staying at like a urban, like a, like a one house sized commune, urban commune, like right outside of the city. Um, so we would have to bike for like hours to get into the city, but they're like totally fine with that. Like the way you would bike to our bar, they like bike for like an hour and a half to get into some Copenhagen bar. Oh my God. But like they're that. totally cool yeah. with it. And they're all fit. Like, they're all in such good shape. Yeah, Europeans, man. It was like, I was just, wow. I was so amazed by by that culture there. They eat nuts and berries, and they just, you know, they bike everywhere, I guess. Yeah, it was it was so wonderful. I was just set up by the canals every day, by all these boats, and it's really beautiful. Um, I went to Berlin, which worked, uh, yeah, my, so, uh, well, to explain that, my sister lives on a commune in Virginia, and so a bunch of these Danes came to visit. And so then they started their own commune. And so when I knew I was going to Copenhagen, I got to touch my sister and she sort of plugged me in with them. They were so nice. But then in Berlin, I went and stayed with um, this photographer that I used to know from when my band like toured through Berlin and stuff. And so I got to just, uh, the time, it was like magical timing. Like she was about to move in with her boyfriend. And so her whole apartment was like empty. And I just had this like strange Friedrich Schein like apartment to hang out in and, um, I would just go to like the the subway stops and write poems every day, you know. Nice. Um, yeah, I like Berlin for that. I I, I really enjoyed myself uh, there too. I thought there was a a hearty scene of lots of curiosity shops and you know, I mean, there's a lot of letterpress, you know, going on in in, in Germany just yeah. in general. There's a ton. Yeah. There's a ton of printing and, and letterpress they, like, stuff. Invented the. Well, basically, yeah, they invented it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I went to the Gutenberg. Did you ever get to the Gutenberg Museum? No, no. The Gutenberg Museum is dope. Cool. It's so cool because it's like the history of printing on the first floor, like all these old presses, like you said, the history of work. So there's all this history of printing and old presses. And then they have a demo going on. And then they have like upstairs. It's just all about Gutenberg and his life. And there's like four Gutenberg Bibles up there or three in this vault. That has like these crazy doors that yeah. like drop, like will we'll, like will wow. like will like will like suffocate you in the place. I you know, like Indiana Jones, and there's like one of them is a decoy, and like yeah, Jesus I, you know, Christ, how much are like, how like, much are three <laughs> Gutenberg Bibles worth? Yeah, like, I don't even billion. Know. You touch it, like a blade just drops, and cuts yeah. your hand off or something. Like uh, no, I mean they're they're like they're like in a they're in a vault like under like under so. thick ass glass. Yeah. I mean they're they're it's yeah. intense, you know. Yeah. Um, and then, and then just like, yeah, the Germans in general have it down, you know, they're, they're like, they're like, uh, really just, they, they, you know, they collect these sort of printing presses and, and, uh, they just have, you know, it's like, it's like not just one press. I, I heard this story about this one guy who isn't even a printer. He's not even a printer. He has the largest collection of, of printing presses in Europe. Hmm. And he has like a giant warehouse. Doesn't use any of them. No. <laughs> Just packed full. Classic collection. And like he's one of these guys that will just go and buy other print shops up and throw it in. And they're well, maybe they'll be preserved in that way, but that's a little bit of a shame in some sense. And it's like yeah. I, I saw they showed me pictures. One one guy showed me pictures of his place and it was just 
like you know those old old school presses, like the, 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 the yeah, the, you know the, well, the I guess with, those would not with, be being used with, like, anyway. The eagles those and dragons and stuff. Oh those, my like, God, gorgeous so ones. Those yeah, yeah those they're they're, they're though, really tall. So I don't know if it's like Nazi or whatever, but it looks it's not so Nazi. Nazi. It's way earlier than that. I know, I know. They're I from like think the eighteen nineties. Someone's gonna that guy's gonna die, and someone's gonna make some crazy ass museum with all that yeah. shit. It would be amazing if you got the space for it. Just like like a warehouse sized museum just filled with old printing presses would be pretty great. It would be yeah. cool. Yeah, there, no, I mean, but there was like when I was there, there was all these people who were like, oh, you gotta go to, you know, you gotta go to this town and this town and this town and this town and like um, and I, I didn't, you know, I barely even made it out of Berlin to be able to do all these other things that I wanted to see and there was like, um, apparently there's a big letterpress scene in um Dresden and uh, a, sense, a few yeah. other towns that are just like uh, some really renegade people doing. But yeah, the letterpress thing's alive and well in um, in in, Berl- in Germany, just in general. Like he, I guess mm. they invented it, so it's like yeah, they've got, Makes they've sense, got that yeah. thing down. You know? Did you experience anything that was different about like what how people would interact with you in another country? Like, did you try to do the typewriter thing in Berlin? Yeah, oh, I did. Yeah, and, like what would people? What would what? How is it different? How, how is it different to engage with those folks than it is like in the French Quarter? Well, yeah, it's an interesting position to be in because I don't want to like traffic in stereotypes, and yet, <laughs> you know, in like in Germany, I got so many poems about like chaos, catastrophe, destruction. Like, I mean, basically, so I ask people for what they want the poem to be about, and it, it, sometimes it's just one word, sometimes it's a scenario, sometimes it's. You know, one guy was like, write me a poem about Why we hurt the ones we love. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in, in France, in, well, in Spain, it's very, like, uh, kind of fiery, sexual, you know, like, uh, write me a love poem for my current lover. Sure. You know, or someone that I would like to be lovers with. And then in France, it was, like, this tragic thing of, like, everything has been destroyed, like, Write me a poem about how I love, like, was not meant to be. Like, things like that. And I know this is, like, really, it's kind of, like, I don't know. Cliche a little bit. Fetishizing some sort of, like, stereotype of these cultures. And yet, it doesn't lie, like, the, you know, uh, it's, because what people ask for sometimes becomes, like, this, this mirror of culture or something, you know. Trump gets elected, suddenly everyone wants poems about, like, fascism and, like, they, they people want some way of processing what is affecting them every day, you know? Yeah. Write me a poem about yeah. the firebombing of Dresden. Why I don't writing? really <laughs> find that that surprising, though, yeah. right? Because if you think about how most people walk through the world, unfortunately, they're probably more a reflection of their culture than they are reacting to it a lot of the time, right? I don't know. Yeah. Do you have, uh, do you have, a, do you have an example? I mean, can you read us something? That, yeah. That takes us into that? Yeah, I'll read you a poem kind of, yeah, definitely connected to the, the sort of um, poetic fascination with Trump that people have now. Like, instead of asking for poems about their dog, you know, they might ask for a poem about Trump. So this is called Fake Noose. My smartphone is a nesting wooden doll, suspiciously heavy and rattling faintly like a SARS saber sheathed. Something doesn't add up. I open her like a jam jar. Find Henry Kissinger headscarved and peasant skirted, clutching a Nobel Peace Prize, but I pop him like a Bud Light. 
And then Putin glistens, bare-breasted. I twist his hips apart, and that's when it happened. It was like a farm spilling out. It was a like farm. So many emperors in that circus giving me a thumbs up, that sound of one hand clapping. I had so much consent manufactured, my applause was deafening. Now I can do anything, even speak French. Listen, alternative, fact, pas, de, de, non, de, guerre. Coup de ta. La la la. So I'm um, so you're reading so you're reading from your your book here. We should say yeah. right. Yeah. And what's what's the name of your book? It's called Currency. Currency. Yeah. So is, are all of these things that you wrote for people and you saved a, exactly, a carbon yeah. copy or something? To, yeah. 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 For years I used carbons, and then someone gave me a smartphone. So now I take photos of them because I, I mean, for a lot of reasons, but I have suitcases just bursting with carbon copies. Like it becomes, I guess, I guess it's easier in some ways to go through photos than it yeah. is to, to go through carbon yeah, copies. Yeah. 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 So do you remember where you wrote that one or what, what the situation was or? Yeah. That one actually wrote in new Orleans during an interview for WGNO news with a twist. Uh huh. And, uh, I was like, uh, well, why don't I write you a poem? They were like getting B-roll or something. I was like, why don't, you, why don't I write you a poem? And he's like, yeah, yeah, write about the news or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like, it, you know, it doesn't matter. Like, they're just, they're doing some other thing and maybe they don't actually care about what the poems sound like or something. Um, and so, yeah, I wanted to to write something about the fake the fakeness of news, the fake news kind of thing but change it a little bit. You know, it's called fake noose instead of fake news. And in some ways, like any kind of thing like that does feel really fake. Like behind me, there were these two bums, you know, this is on Royal street in the French quarter. And there's like bums, um, spanging for change, begging for change. And they had this big cardboard sign and their, their whole thing was like, it said, fuck Trump. And they just put the sign up with a bowl and just had their middle fingers out, and that was their that was their um, spiel, or that was their uh, that was their thing. How appropriate! And uh, but they had to keep adjusting the camera over and over and over again to like make sure the guys weren't in the scene. <laughs> like, I mean, maybe there's a profanity thing, maybe there's a political reason why they both, can't. But yeah, but it was just like they were literally editing out reality. There was no reason to to move anything except that like reality was in the way of what was happening, and so like everything that you see on TV, it's I mean that's like a tiny little microcosm of something much bigger, you know. Oh yeah, like you know, I remember I remember doing a piece. It, it wasn't like for TV, but it, you know, it's like an interview, radio interview or something, and you know, it was like um, you know, they came over here and and you know they took they took like. 45 minutes of, of audio, mm. and, and uh, I am literally on the piece for two sentences at two different parts in, like, a 20-minute yeah. piece. It's just, like, me saying, like, one sentence, yeah. and then 10 minutes later, for it's me sure. saying one sentence, and they had come over here at 45 minutes recorded. Yeah. Yeah. That's just how it goes, though. Yeah. Sometimes, sure. you know? Yeah, but 
to play devil's advocate, that's not, not just the news, right? That's everything, right? You do that with poetry, too. Mm. You're selecting what goes through. Yeah. You're selecting it for different reasons yeah. than what the news is selecting it for. Yeah. But anytime you're putting something together like that, you're selecting it. I would think maybe the emptiness of how it comes across in news has more to do with the reasons of why they're selecting what they're selecting more than it does the fact that they're selecting things. Yeah. Right. Definitely. Yeah. Although with poets, you know, our poets trying to, they're trying to get at truth, even if it's in some circuitous way. Yeah. Like magic yeah. realism or something. It's like, it's a total lie. Like n- none of that is happening. It's fiction, but it's using fiction as like a way to, to, to reach truth. I mean, I think a lot of people would agree with that. I mean, I don't know that all poets would agree with that, right? But I think you're right. I mean, I think... But I think there's certainly... But I think poetry is kind of weird with that, right? Mm. Poetry is not... Most of the time, probably not selecting things based on Mm. feeding people what they already want. Yeah. Where news is very much about that, right? Yeah. Um... But anytime you're giving someone something, right, you're doing this act of selection. But, yeah, mm. news is funny, right, because you're trying to. But part of that is, like, why are they not including those bums in the shot, right? Yeah, you're right. Part of it's profanity. You're not allowed to probably have fuck on the mm. on the evening news. Definitely not. But uh, <laughs> They don't have the freedom we have. They do they not certainly have the freedom. Do not have they hate freedom. our freedoms. No. Yeah. There's, a, there's, this, there's a funny story about this uh that exact thing, and it's, uh, I, I mean, very few people would know who this is, but there's a woman who is the, the head of a nonprofit in New Orleans, and she used to be a newscaster, and she said fuck on the, on the news live during Mardi Gras one year. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Accidentally, it cost her her, her career. Wow. Because wow. it was in the eight seventies, or it was like in the late 70s, or yeah. it was in the 80s, or like 80s, 90s, really where the FCC was just like, nope. Probably came down in that news station yeah. with a fifty thousand dollar fine for yeah. that. You know, like national right. news during right. Mardi Gras. Like they're over here fucking around or whatever she said. Like it not was every, not everybody can be Don Lemon. <laughs> Don Lemon. Lemon. Well, and all of those things, of course, if you're famous enough, it doesn't matter anymore, right? You can get away with it. No, the, but, the, uh, the, the, the the recent one, the recent critique was the one of that the the kid, the the, the Olympic snowboarder, who they said like. Was late. Was late for his thing. Woke up. Woke up late. Slept in. You know, like all this. He was like a typical sixteen-year-old, seventeen-year-old teenager. And yeah. then, and then he was like, "Oh, I'm here for my thing." And then, like, he like suited up real quick. And then, like, "Yeah, dude!" And he won the gold. And and, right. and 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 when he won the gold, and like he was with his family, it was on national news. He's like, "Oh fuck, this is amazing!" <laughs> and they, I'm so high. <laughs> and they never. No, no, no. I mean, he's not taking drugs because he's an Olympic athlete, but. He was is he? Is no, he he's not. not. No, 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 no. But they let it go. <laughs> they let it go. Actually, well, yeah, that should yeah. have been an editor who got in trouble in that, not for him, because you should be running that on enough delay. You could fix that. You could but, totally fix well, that. Yeah. Like the American newscasters don't know how to pronounce like the names of major Korean cities, and they don't know our swear words. Maybe yeah. maybe there's something like that going on. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. that could be, I suppose. Yeah. But yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I think that's a funny thing, and it's interesting to think about, right? Mm. Well, and that's maybe a funny thing about that poem in some ways, too, right? Fake news. Can you have fake news poetry? Sure. 
I don't know. We're hey, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna have for Poetry Fest. We're gonna have a few people from uh, Poets Reading the News. that will be in town. Yeah. So well, that'll well, be maybe we'll try to wrangle. Yeah. Oh, okay. We'll, I we'll, want to we'll, interview them. I I, I really just followed me on my Instagram I think that, accounts. I think that project is really interesting. It is. Have you seen that? A little bit. Yeah. 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 Cool. I think that's a really interesting project. Yeah. I don't know that I totally love the poetry from it, but I like the idea a lot. They're going to be in town for Poetry yeah, Festival. No, maybe we could, maybe maybe we could we have an episode them. about poets reading the news. Yeah. We get poets reading the fake news. <laughs> it would just be poetry out from, there. from CNN, I guess. Yeah. And Fox. <laughs> but CNN's fake too, you know? It's funny. That I think that's one of the strange things about our political moment. Is it's like... You know, Trump is saying, every time someone criticizes Trump, he says it's fake news. And people say, oh, Trump's lying. The news isn't fake. That's ridiculous. And the problem with that is, with that liberal mindset, is that the news is fake. And the New York Times is not necessarily, you know, I mean, not everything they say is fake. But they, they definitely have, like, agendas. And sometimes there is, like, a really mysterious, coordinated effort to, like, have some sort of smokescreen... Well, yeah. well, yeah. well, you know, okay. No, we we can go off on this. Well, two two things I want to say. Yeah, this is one. Paranoia, I, I, I have a friend who's a who's a media case. historian, a news yeah. historian. He's actually yeah. writing uh, an article for like a, a popular uh, magazine coming up about fake news, and it's all about the history of fake news. Yeah. And you know, I was like, you know, I was like, um, I just saw that movie, The Post. The, uh, about the Washington yeah, Post, you know, releasing the, you know, you should, it's really good. It's, yeah, yeah. Okay, it's a Tom Hanks movie, but it's still good. That's it's, why it's, I didn't see it. I hate it's, Tom Hanks. Okay, it's, 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 it's not even close to as good as All the President's Men, but yeah, it's yeah. still a movie yeah. worth seeing because it tells the story about the Pentagon Papers and how they got them and what happened and how they released all this Vietnam uh, stuff yeah, yeah. Well, and that, which, which led to Watergate. Which it led to the water. It led to Watergate. Right. It was. It was. It was connected. Right. And um, you know. But anyways, my friend who who talks about this fake news thing, and and, and you know what it comes down to is like, you know, like for example, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which was like the incident that that surged us in the Vietnam War. Right. The the Viet the Vietnamese government and the U.S. government came out like twenty years later and said it, this was actually fake. It never happened. The Gulf of Tonkin incident never yeah. happened. Yeah. So I brought this up to my friend Julian. I was like, oh, I saw the post, man. The Gulf of Tonkin was bullshit. And blah, blah. <laughs> he goes, Gulf of Tonkin? Let's talk about the Lusitania. Let's talk about, yeah. you know, like, you know, let's talk about, the like. the Spanish-American War? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Let's talk about, like, all these things that went down that were fake news. So, so like, as far, and, you know, the, then there's the famous, the moon hoax of the 1850s. Right. Where they published all this stuff about little green man. And it was, That's cool. So I there's, check that out. You know, there's a poet. Uh, fake news is as old as news. Well, yeah. I mean, it's complicated, you know, right? right? Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Now, what were you going to say? There's a poet. You want to check out that? Well, the, the new editor of um, the New Yorker Poetry, Kevin Young, just wrote a book about fake news. Huh. I, I haven't read it yet, but it looks really interesting. Hmm. I don't know. I don't typically like him, but it's an interesting idea. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, but I mean, it's but but it is interesting, right? Especially in America, there's such a long history of fake news until, Jesus, I mean, how long was that almost the entire way that newspapers got readers was by yeah. making up a bunch of shit. Yellow journalism. Europe, too. I mean, man, it's funny. How many, there's still, like, ferry encounters being printed in European newspapers up until... The fucking 1950s, basically. Yeah, like, well, because there, that's there's so much all this fairy lore in Europe. I mean, you can go into, 
You can get encounters. Very encounters. Encounters. Very encounters. Like you can you can find in major European newspapers accounts of oh so farmer so and so at at this <laughs> property awesome. saw some fairies like on his property you know like up until the 1930s and 40s right like that stuff's what? still being printed in newspapers awesome. right it's all those mushrooms he's eating from his cow patties <laughs> his cow pets <laughs> but i mean but yeah and i mean and yeah you think about yellow journalism in america and everything i mean you, you you've got that going on but then at the same time I think now people get upset about anonymous sources and things, but you can't have journalism without anonymous sources at the same time, because like, you're never going to find out anything yeah. secret if you yeah. don't protect. Did, I don't know. This we can know, go. We can yeah. go down a rabbit hole here. We can go down a literal rabbit hole here. <laughs> yeah. But like, I mean, I don't know how much NPR. I don't know. I don't know how much NPR that any you go right. listen to this week. Oh, about the like the Mark Zuckerberg letter and and all this uh, stuff that yeah. came down. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean. Let, let's just, let's just. It's this is what happened. Our election was thrown by the Russians. Right. They, 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 Zuckerberg came out and apologized. I mean, he was like, yeah. he's tormented by yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he published a five thousand word letter. Yeah. About how he's tormented. Oh, he's by his thousand words. By his why he's <laughs> why he's tormented by this. That's and, the most he's ever written. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's the most and, and, it, and it's all about like how you know it's like it's, <laughs> he invented. You know, they, they came. They, you know, it's like this thing yeah. was supposed to make us to. But they're pulling us apart. To be egalitarian in the way they sell. Yes, but ad space. But but they, but they said that the mistake was exactly. obvious. Yeah. That the mistake. Now looking back, that the mistake mm. that they saw was obvious, and it had to do with all this money coming in. Which was just buying ads, yeah. and one of, they said one of the whole, fakest ads was the like the one was like two weeks before the election, and it, and, and and it was a million dollars came in to post this ad, and it was a fake ad talking about how the Pope had endorsed Trump, oh. and it was and it was read by millions I of people. I remember reading that, and it was read by millions I of people. And it was like I'm and, sure that convinced, it, but it was people, put. Yeah. But they said the money behind it was like yeah. over a million dollars, and it had gone out to so many people, mm. and they had targeted people like in religious yeah. right, you know. So, so like the truth of the matter is, is there was I mean, the, like it happened. We're in a we're in a post meddling yeah. election. I mean, it it happened. They, also, there I think it's like due to their like complete absence of moral scruples of any kind in the interest of money. You know, like, they, yes. they, they don't have a department, they don't fund a department that helps, you know, make sure things are real, because they, they have, like, so little interest in anything other than... Well, sure. I, I mean, I guess, yeah, yeah, I mean, it is about money, ultimately, but I think that's interesting, right, because the f I think you look at something like like internet companies and, 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 and something like Facebook, I think it's actually, strangely, probably less oriented towards money than other aspects of capitalism are because they do actually have some feeling of promoting certain kind of values. I'm not saying they always hmm. succeed at it, but I mean, I think the tech industry, I think more than other industries in America do feel like they are curbing some of their capitalism to promote certain values. Yeah. But part, that's part of the problem is that part of what the things that they're promoting is openness and allowing things that would maybe otherwise yeah. be considered fringe, but yes, the money is certainly an aspect just, of that. You I think know, it's so putrid to the core. It's like so they don't pay taxes. Yeah, that's so at yeah, all. Well, at that's all. fucked up. They hide right? all their money off seas, <laughs> and then they write the rest of it off through like loopholes. And then they think that 
by the grace of their goodwill and, and who they, in which politicians they buy. Yeah. That they are, I just like, oh my god. Yeah, don't get me started. We should talk about poetry, maybe. Well, we should yeah, talk about poetry. Yeah, we're back. Okay, so I don't know how we got into the fake news thing. I guess we're talking about the, the poem. The poem was about poem, fake news, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> well, okay, right. but, but, so you are doing a lot of poetry, writing on what people are suggesting topics to you, mm. and, and you just read one, so you can't, you probably can't avoid these topics a lot of the time, right? Yeah, it's it's not really about avoiding. The only thing I avoid is like the pet related ones. I kind of refuse. <laughs> I kind of refuse like, <laughs> can you write a poem about my pet lemur? It's really my cool. sugar. Hey Ben, can you write a poem about my pet sugar glider? It's uh, well, that's kind of interesting. Right? Sugar glider, <laughs> I might be able to. We, like, it's like my dog Muffy. They're really nice. But what do you do? Yeah. Like, what do you do if someone? I'm sure you can tell a lot of the time wants you to write about a topic that is has political tinge to it, but mm. you know that you probably disagree with them on their on that Have on their. That I don't think I've ever gotten a pro-Trump thing uh, or like a conservative-based thing. You know, never really. Are you trying to say the current conservative people don't like poetry? Yes. <laughs> um, no, 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 no. But I do. You know, it's definitely some things that aren't explicitly political, but more like. Um, like drunk Tulane bros asking me for like an ode to Bukaki. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, did you and write that one? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Do I have that with me? Yeah. Was it? Was it, did you? You just wrote that. Yesterday? So what was your <laughs> no, was what was your question. solution? Did you like subvert what they were asking you to do in some well, way? Or? I find it super fascinating that they want an ode. They want poetry. They want to pay someone to celebrate with poetry the, like, sexual humiliation of a woman by, like, a gang of men or whatever. And, uh... I find like that absolutely vile. Oh, it's vile, but it's... That's our cult... You know, that's our culture. Like, yeah. that's kind of the culture... Like, that's not every aspect of our culture, but it is an aspect of our culture. Like, absolutely. So I'm fascinated by that. Like, where, where does that come from? What is it? And so I can't remember what I said. Maybe I have it somewhere... But, uh, we'll not have you read that poem, but I would have looked at that guy the last and been line like, was, get the fuck out of here, The dude. last line was basically <laughs> like, um, the last line was like, uh, you, you know, you ask for that which you actually want for yourself. Was like the last so line. You, so, you got so, a little, the, so you got a little burn in there? I was basically like, you guys want, you guys want to be humiliated, is like why you want this, or whatever. And I don't even know if that's true. That was just, like, the strange, poetic, like, inspiration that came to me. But after I gave it to them, they were like, whoa, man. Like, they were all like, oh, shit, he went, like, really deep. And we basically had this, like, long conversation about masculinity, like, on Royal Street, in the midst of all this drinking and stuff. And I basically, like, shamed the shit out of them. <laughs> and they kind of, like, went away with kind of, like, their tails between their legs, kind of, like, shaking their heads and stuff. And maybe I'm... Mad, you know, maybe I'm painting that a little rosily or something, but I, I like to think that I had um, some had sort some of little good, tiny in a small perturbation way, in like, there. Yeah. Thought but of but I like but, that. I like that because that's the power of poetry, actually. Yeah, because exactly. what you're doing is you're actually taking something, right? Right? And then you're like, okay, okay, fine. And then you do it, okay? Yeah. When you're in the you're in a world you're in a world 
you know, you've participated in this this thing that you do in a world way. Okay, you've gone off, you've done it in different city, different countries, and different yeah. places, and and so you're in, and you are engaging within this capitalist thing. But I'm thinking about like the way that that sort of like raw form of capitalism exists in a place like the French Quarter and Royal Street, where you have mm-hmm. henna artists out there, and you've got poets out there on the street doing their thing, and you've got people painted like gold doing their mm. thing, and then you've got those jackasses who are doing, like, the big megaphone speaker thing, where it's, like, all this, like, intensity, and then it's just a guy flipping over another guy, and it's just, like, you know, yeah. and I'm thinking about that, as as my friend Jenna said, it's, like, this 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 uh, community and environment, and even my roommates now, these buskers from Bristol, they're telling me all about this whole, like, oh, yeah, the busker scene in, on the Royal Street is intense, and, like, you got to get down there yeah. at six AM to hold your spot, and but I'm saying like yeah, this is like a type of street no, capitalism, yeah. and and well, that, and I think that's interesting, Ben, because you're coming, you came from that kind of background before you were doing it with poetry, yeah. and it's a, but I think whether you're doing poetry or whether you're doing music or whether you're doing some sort of performance thing, there's a lot of places to fall in that. Mm-hmm. There's there's a big spectrum, right, and it's like. You can make money by feeding people what they want. You can make funny money by exploiting people what they want. You can make money through humiliation sometimes by mm-hmm. humiliating people in a way that they want to be humiliated. There's this whole spectrum of. Yeah. of I bet of I can street, tell you where you, you got know? those shoes. Yeah, right. That thing. That's like a humiliation yeah. thing, right? Kind of like a jokester type thing, or and there's all kinds of things in between, yeah. right? The um, painted people—they're just making people laugh. Or what the fuck are they even doing? I see. I see what I what I'm doing with the Tribute City is is like very similar, but but different in the really specific way of that um, they were absolutely operating uh, on the on like this patronage basis directly to the aristocracy which is pretty different but directly yeah, to yeah, the extreme yeah. privileged you know one percent of society or whatever and uh in the 21st century it's possible through the street like what you're saying to have it be literally an egalitarian thing were you trying to make the point be avenue that like there's so many things you can do out there to get them get to get that might to be it's so many different types of well, leeches i mean you there's can a be. lot of different ways you can and i and i and i think but I, I think, like, getting back to the troubadour thing, right? Like, you're right. Like, it's a little different. You're on the street. That's a different thing. Although that can still be an aspect of it because mm. mostly, who are the people that have disposable money yeah. to buy a poem from you? But. But not always. Not I always. I yeah. for homeless people for free. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have never turned down a single person based on money. Ever. Never. But, so it's like if you want a poem, you shall have a poem. But I'm gonna I'm gonna make a guess right now, which oh, is Oh that people would preemptorily not approach me. Well well that's not what I was gonna say, but that might be yeah. true too. I'm gonna make a guess right now that the times that the poems maybe tend a little bit more towards humiliating the people are the people who are probably giving you the most money. Definitely. Bingo. You know, because they want it, they need it. Someone's got to tell them the truth. And that's what they're. Lo- that's what they're looking for. They're so that's what they're that looking someone, for. Too. They're so yeah. grateful that someone has told them the truth because they because they've accrued all this wealth. They've surrounded themselves with like circles of people who all they do all day is tell them what they want to hear. 
Yeah, there's that too. Yeah, there's that too. And so when they need a straight shooter, whatever you want to call it, they're just so grateful. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, But I guess the patronage thing is more when you go, which we've all done, read at an art gallery or read at somewhere that actually has money to give you. Read at a university. Or a university or something that has money to give you. Uh, And... I don't know. That's a different kind of relationship, I suppose. But it's not. It's not bad. I'm. Just, but that's maybe. Maybe there's know. almost like this inverse relationship thing going on because one of the ways in which troubadour poetry was egalitarian is uh, in this really revolutionary way, in the sense that um, it it did seem to start from noblemen, but as it spread, uh, they're absolutely peasant troubadours who rose through the classes um, through. Uh, through poetry, and uh, there are also female troubadours who were peers and colleagues and equals. Yeah, which is like a thousand years before. You know, I mean, today we're still struggling to. It's so yeah, man. That I mean, I don't know. I find that stuff interesting as much as I don't terribly like troubadour poetry. Right, but uh, but it's so complicated, right? Because there's also this like resistance to Christianity. Yeah. This. Yeah. There's that going on for sure. They were dangerous heretics. Yeah, hunted down. <laughs> the troubadour poets were right. They were hunt- they were hunted yeah. down. Yeah. There's this one story. So I'm reading a couple books right now. Uh, Lark in the Morning is a great one, which is probably like the classic. It's translated by Ezra Pound and W. Snodgrass. And then I'm also reading a book called Troubadours: An Introduction. There's another one I'm reading called. Uh, the troubadours as seen through material dialectics or something like that. It's kind of uh, a little impenetrable, but um, there's this one story in here about uh, they were, Oh, it's the last troubadour. Yeah. Let me see if I can find that. The last troubadour. The very last troubadour. Yeah. Um, Because it, uh, yeah, after about, after about 200 years um, and the Albigensian crusade, Albigensian crusade. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, they were sort of pretty much wiped out by that. Uh, and, uh, there was this, uh, oh yeah. Um, the very last troubadour, Guiro Riquier, um, the so-called last troubadour, he was convinced to stop writing, I think, by the, by like a legate from the Catholic church, um, who convinced him to like join a monastery or something like that. And uh, they convinced him by saying that his poetry was the devil's music, which I thought was so interesting. Because isn't that what they called jazz and rock and roll? Like the well, devil's music? I mean, uh, I mean, the I was general, like, whoa, that's so that's, interesting. I mean, you know? it is interesting, but that's not weird, right? I mean, I don't know that rock music could have existed without troubadours. Right? They kind of created... Yeah. Not on purpose, but it inadvertently created the modern idea of love, right? I mean, yeah. you couldn't have that. Yeah. One thing I've been curious, and I wonder what, what you would think of this, is, um, you know, all the scholarship says that the troubadours created the, the, yeah, the modern notion of love, courtly love, fanamor, which is like this refined love. It's kind of like love that is so sublime, it actually can't exist in the yeah, confines yeah, of a marriage, yeah, yeah. which is really interesting, which is kind of like the horny troubadour, like, writing this sexy well, thing but for, it's the, also for like the wife, against you know? the state. But, I mean, it, that's also part of the time period. It's against yeah. the state marriage. No one was getting married. Yeah. You were getting married for money. You were getting married yeah. for... But I can't help but thinking that, um, yeah, because the scholarship is kind of like... 
you know, there was no sex other than, like, procreative sex and blah, blah, blah. I think there's some disagreement like that, on that. I, I think there's some disagreement there on that. Yeah, just yeah. been some human, like... Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Sex and love and just, like, you know, some kind of mating dance sort of scenario where you, you sing a song for someone that you like or you, you say a bunch of sweet things to them or something. Like, I find it hard to... I think it's it's more maybe based in, like, the manuscript thing where they they were the ones to actually start recording these things well i mean you know and there's a there i think there's a lot of disagreement about what the troubadours came out of but i actually think it was probably a complicated thing i don't think it was just one thing and i i i I mean and part of that's my own background and what 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 i like but i do think there's a definite yeah there's a definite influence from latin love poetry i don't think they were unaware of that Mm -hmm. i think that that's feeds into it. I mean, I know that's not... I, I wouldn't say that's the main thing, but I think they're aware of Ovid. I think they're aware of Horace and Catullus. I think they're yeah. aware of those yeah. things. I think that partially feeds into it. Because they but, could read. Yeah, they, they could, could read. read. They could read. Then, they yeah. had training. They were they able to read. Tall, yeah, but yeah. They can, I'm, I'm assuming they can read Latin. And I think that's at least feeding in to part of that, which is... But, but, but that was very opposite of what the society said about yeah. sexual relationships and love at that time, which is interesting too, you know? And it, I'm not saying that's the only thing. I know, I know a lot of it is about, like, the whole Arabic Spain and all exactly. of that and dealing exactly. with that. But, yeah, yeah. but I, I think that probably fed into it. I think it's a lot of things just that are a confluence of different influences that yeah. happen to yeah. fall together in that way at the same time, you know? I find that so. I'm glad you brought up the genesis of them because uh, I've been talking with a, a Syrian poet friend of mine, and he's like a linguist. And uh, he was like, "What's your name?" And I was like, "Benjamin." He just like told me the entire history <laughs> of the word Benjamin. I was like, "Oh, oh, you, oh, you get that shit in France all the time, right?" Like, oh, you're a Benjamin. Yeah. Oh, you're the youngest. Blah blah yeah, blah. Yeah, and yeah. he's like, "No, no, no." Like, <laughs> ben is like the son, and Yemen is to the right. So it was the son who was passed the stage. Yeah, the yeah, yeah, It didn't yeah. matter when you were born. And I was like, "Whoa, Ben Yemen." And he's like, "Yeah." And I was like, "Wow, that's Arabic, huh?" And he's like, "No, it's way older than Arabic." I was like, oh, "Snap!" Like, so anyway, this guy, I asked him about it because I I had started reading about the troubadours, and it seems like yeah, the scholarship is a little ambiguous. A lot of people are like the troubadours just sprang from the earth as a flower with no vine or whatever. Like they just magically appeared. But then, um, there's also a group of people who think that it came directly from all Andalus from the Umayyad Caliphate who was occupying Spain at the time. And which was really like the center of European culture, like the, the courts, like the King of England would send his kids to, all Andalus to, to go to school because it was... Well, that, was and that makes leading, sense, like, right? You know? Because, like, you do have all these... Yeah. Like, William de Aquitaine and everything, like... Yeah. Who, by the that, way... But he's got to be getting that from... It's not like he... He bought slaves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he bought a hundred Muslim slaves from Al Andalus who were musicians. And they yeah. were brought to his court at, at um, Poitou or wherever. And so, uh, I think that's got to be, like, the, the first... I mean, yeah, William of Aquitaine, like, the first troubadour... He literally grew up in this house with like a hundred or several hundred Muslim musician poet slaves who were there. So even giving him the most credit possible, I would say he would be 
borrowing yeah. the, uh, but the tradition, got, but it's probably more than that. He probably straight up stole a bunch of it, I'm sure, you know? But then also, you know, maybe like 150, 200 years before the first Troubadour uh, was the formation of the Toledo School of Translation, where all these Sephardic Jewish scholars oh, yeah. translated yeah. all of the classic Arabic texts, and um, like uh, especially Ibn Hazm, who wrote The Ring of the Dove, which basically lays out all the... I'm still... Stu- I'm not an expert at this. I'm still like studying this, but it basically lays out a lot of the courtly love ideas that then the troubadours would do like 200 well, years later. Well, you know, I was wondering, and I mean, I really have no idea about that, and I guess my Arabic history is pretty poor. But if I think of, like, Sufi traditions and how love is used to illustrate religious mm. concepts... Yeah. ...in Islam, I wonder if there's some connection mm-hmm. there, too, or if it's coming out of that same... of some similar Arabic tradition of yeah. using love to illustrate religious concepts yeah. also, which is kind of crazy and ironic if that's true, that you're trying to... <laughs> somewhat rebel against Christianity, but you're using something that was actually a religious illustrative technique at the same time. But then you go back to, you go back to, uh, you know, you go back to Hebrew poetry and it's the same thing. They did the same thing, used love as a A metaphor for the spiritual experience and and eroticism, not just love, as as a metaphor for the spiritual experience. I'm getting kind of obsessed with it and it's it's difficult because if I'm... Yeah, it's difficult to kind of really find out what what things were like. Like, I mean, on its face, it seems easy. And then it's, are you talking about the aristocracy? Or are you talking about the vast majority of people? Because in the aristocracy, there there didn't really seem to be any sort of romantic love. Yeah. Arranged marriages, and you just did whatever was expedient. But then among the majority of people, where there there isn't a organized system like that, I have to speculate that there must have been all sorts of, you know, flirtation and, you know, like the, the consos that the, the, the troubadours write, there's this, from stanza to stanza, there's like this push and pull yeah. game of like, the troubadour makes an advance and the, the, the lady pulls away and then the troubadour apologizes and the lady well, comes back yeah, and he says I suspect this. there's something much more complicated going on than that. Which I think everyone, which is something that's alien to us, mm. had a double life going on to yeah. some extent in their love life, right? Yeah. You had someone that you were married to, no matter what level you were at. Even right. if you were a peasant, you right. were trying to marry up. Right. But that wasn't someone that you thought you were in love with necessarily, right? You yeah. you still had affairs. You still had yeah. things that you were doing that were maybe more about love. But... Marriage was such a separate thing. I think yeah. you you saw those as two different things. Yeah, and well, and that's another reason where I think maybe the Latin poetry appealed to them. If you think about Catullus or someone like that, it's like that was the same thing in Roman times, right? It was like yes, marriage is about advancing your family, is about advancing your career, but that doesn't mean you're not having love affairs on the side. That doesn't mean you're not doing these other things that are 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 about. Well, and the funny thing is, though, when you think about the troubadours, is I think as much as, which is kind of what we were saying before, as much as the troubadours wanted that, I think their clients wanted that too because mm. it was justification for their own affairs. Yeah, it was also it was that, fantasy. Yeah, it was fantasy, right? Yeah, I've been reading like, it described as like a burlesque, where it's there's this multi-layered thing where everyone knows that it's not real. 
but it's what you want. Yeah. But then it might actually be real. <laughs> like the troubadour might be like yeah. banging your wife. You it know, might be real. Yeah. And think of you've like gone at war think for of five like, years. Yeah. Think of like something? Arthurian. Like, are think like, of like the Arthurian yeah. legends and things, yeah. which almost don't yeah. make sense outside of that context. But if you think of it in the in that context, it makes sense because the whole like Lancelot stuff and everything doesn't. Mm. It's like what? Why is Arthur letting him? Yeah. Like go around fucking Guinevere yeah. and stuff and it's like but that's a whole part of that thing right it's right. this whole idea of like oh yes but and there is that possibility like you're saying oh maybe it's not consummated in any sort of way maybe it's just this romantic idea of holding them up on a pedestal although I think you're right I think a lot of the times it was not there was a sexual relationship but yeah so you've got this you've got this troubadour book do you have uh, a we, troubadour poem you'd like to read? Uh, no, I have a troubarites poem. Oh, troubarites, female, female troubadour. troubadour. Yeah. I know you say you don't like troubadour poetry, so maybe this can convince you. Maybe, but, I hope so. Um, <laughs> I think it's great. You know, and it's also, yeah, it's definitely kind of like the relativism of, of you know, a thousand years ago and stuff. But this is the Comtesse de Dia, who wrote this poem called Cruel Are the Pains I've Suffered. And, and one thing that I think was so revolutionary about them was um, they really created for, I think, the first time in, in these kind of societies, like, the sovereignty of a woman's desires yeah, and yeah. affections and interests and pleasure and um, just the, the, even I, the idea that that would be a thing at all, but um, is actually, like, given act real sovereignty and actually kind of placed above the man's desire where the men were supposed to kind of prostrate themselves yeah no absolutely yeah. before the desires of the woman which was like um completely foreign idea and actually the true some of the troubadours were like mocked viciously for being like effeminate in this way they instead of being like warrior men who would just like take what they wanted or something but i thought that was one of the really wonderful things about it but but again this is this is a female troubadour um and this is her poem it's called cruel are the pains i've suffered by the Comtesse de Dia. Cruel are the pains I've suffered for a certain cavalier whom I have had. I declare I love him. Let it be known forever. But now I see that I was deceived. When I'm dressed or when I languish in bed, I suffer a great anguish. I should have given him my love. One night, I'd like to take my swain to bed and hug him, wearing no clothes. I'd give him reason to suppose he was in heaven if I deigned to be his pillow. For I've been more in love with him than Floris was with Blanche Fleur. My mind, my eyes, I give to him, my life, mon corps. When will I have you in my power, dearest friend, charming and good? Lying with you one night, I would kiss you so you could feel my ardor. I want to have you in my husband's place. Of that, you can rest assured, provided you give your solemn word that you'll obey my every command. Hmm. <laughs> Isn't that great? I really, well, I really like the sentiment <laughs> of it. Yeah, I really like the sentiment of it. It's, But it, like a lot of troubadour poems, I like the sentiment of it, but it's pretty poorly written poetry at the same time. Well... You know? <laughs> I mean, yeah. In the context, in the con, in the context of everything, I think it's pretty amazing. And, the, and it's also important to remember, um, yeah. You know, flipping through this book, Lark in the Morning, that was definitely my first 
impression was like, wow, I really don't like any of this. Like, I love the idea of the troubadours and everything, but then actually reading it, I'm kind of like, you know, oh, lady, blah, 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 I lay a flower at your feet, and it's kind of like, this is the source of all cliché. Well, part of it's very formulaic. It's formulaic in a lot of ways, and I think that's by design to some extent, yeah. Um, But you have to think that it's also... It's been translated from another language, and there was... It was a song. It's basically like reading... Yes, no, I think that's an important point. It's like reading Jim Morrison's lyrics. That's an important point. Which, you know, you read a Jim Morrison book, and you're kind of like... No, I I have thought about that a lot, that I do try to remind myself that they were singing this. Maybe (laughs) that made a difference. Um, And the translations, I wonder, but some of them I've read in... I where it's side by side, and I can have enough of a reading yeah. knowledge of the language, and it still doesn't really help that much. <laughs> I, I kind of see that poem like in the if you were to try to equate. I mean, a thousand years later, there's like the Velvet Underground, like "Kiss the Boot," you know, um, and stuff like that. And I guess, like, except that I don't know, like "Kiss the Boot" is, is a little better, a little better of. I don't yeah, know. It's yeah. hard. It's hard. But yeah, I mean. I, Absolutely. If you took random song lyrics and wrote them out, it would be a similar sort of thing. Absolutely. Um, it's like, like to me that that underground Velvet Underground song is kind of like it's an example of like totally provocative, totally shocking poetry about transgressive sex, right? And so that yes. po- this poem I just read, I feel like in the context of a thousand years ago, you know, where the, the that's funny because the limited that's in that song and stuff, and you know, what's that? <laughs> That's funny. Uh, you just subliminally were read- doing the lyrics to that song. Oh, what song? Which one? Severin, Severin. Yeah. You're my brother. I could sleep for a thousand years. But yes, you're right. Um, Maybe the Comtesse was asleep for a thousand years. <laughs> 1960s wakes up in the body of Louis. No, but absolutely. Dominatrix lover or something. I don't know. I don't know shit about the Troubadour poets, so it's like all I know is that Pound and is that Pound was obsessed with them and did a ton of you know. Uh, I think that I, I, if I remember correctly, I remember it being like that was like his, like his thesis, like his, his like, big like entree, his like the... undergrad thesis or something. Yeah, I, I think it really. I think it was. Yeah, because I think it was he was like super obsessed with them and he had done all this like translation work and the translation work that he did wasn't that great. It was, you know, it wasn't that great, yeah. you know, but it was, it was, but he, but he was like the, the Western voice that was right. like bringing it, bringing right. it into right. modern right. favor again. Right. You know what I mean? I think if I remember and correctly. Did Engli- or did he do it in French? No, he did it in English. I probably. think he did it in English. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I assume somebody's translating to modern French. Oh, I'm Western, sure of it. Right? No, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. He's such a character, man. I mean, he turned out to be a crazy fascist, but, like, you know, his early biographies look so interesting. He's, like, strutting around. He's, like, 19, strutting around with a cane and, like, a hat and, like, flowers. And he's sort of, like, uh, he was this total dandy, like, um, people are like, who the fuck is this guy? You know? And he's yeah, like, there's, like, a... St- Ezra Pound. Well, because, like, he could... Yeah, because he went... Because, well, I mean, he was kicked out of school. Yeah, yeah. For like he was kicked out of school for like for like having Dorothy Shakespeare like in his or whatever his girlfriend was I think it was Dorothy for having her over one night or something like he had her over and they're like don't do that again and he had her over again and he was like we were just reading poetry and it's like he got kicked out of school because of it or something like that you know 
And it was like, um, but I think, well, no, 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 maybe, no, 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 I'm sorry. I said Dorothy Shakespeare. I was like, that's wrong. It was like his childhood lover or like his high, his high school lover or like his college lover or something. And then, and then like he got kicked out and then he ended up over in England at first, you know, that was like when he was like rubbing elbows with like Ford, yeah. Maddox Ford and like those yeah. guys and there's like stories about him like jumping up on the table, like eating flowers, like munching on flowers, being like, "Listen to me!" Yeah, he's a total you know, like yeah, yeah, we're yeah. just talking about Pound and how much of a nut he was. You yeah. Know? yeah, and then he went to Roosevelt, and Roosevelt's like, "Get away from me, poet!" And he's like, "I'm going to Mussolini or whatever." Like yeah, it was, it was like years between he when he did that, but yeah. he like um, he needed an audience, you know. They're like, "I oh, will put you on the radio," you know, like you know. And it's then he got the side, like got the better of him, you know. It, yeah, it was really all be, it was all because of his his uh, his his uh, his uh, economic politics about usury. You know, it's all throughout the cantos. Yeah, you know, that whole thing. Well, he's like, a flaming anti-Semite. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, I well, see that him. was not uncommon at the time either. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I see him as like, yeah, he sort of became this time fascist or something. But I I kind of see it as like total manipulation. Like it served his moment. It did. Like, he comes back, he goes to the hospital, and he's, like, holding court in the mental hospital. Like, he's what? using it to his, you know, he, like, remained there because it was using it to his advantage and stuff. You know? Well, I mean, that's not entirely true, but, but, but okay, like, when, when he, you're saying, like, when he was arrested at Rapallo and then he was brought back to St. Elizabeth's Hospital, mm. he was going to be executed. Right. You know that? And then, yeah. and then, and then, and then, and then Charles Olson had connections right. to the State Department. Right, right, right. And went to go see him. And he actually dictated some of the cantos to Olsen. But it was and, like, and, and, what, decades that he was in that mental hospital? Yeah, they finally got it. Yeah. Well, he was, I think, I don't even know. I think it was like five or ten years. It was yeah. like eight years or something. Yeah. But, I, or something like that. But he was like. It was a damn long time. Yeah, but, but, but like, <laughs> they, they, I mean, he got the insanity plea, basically, is what happened. It's like, this guy needs help. You know, because they were going to kill yeah. him for treason. They were going to execute him for treason. Mm. And then all these people interceded. You know, it was like hundreds of people wrote letters and stuff. And then he was let out, and then he lived in the United mm. States for a few years, and then he went back to... So many people owed him favors. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. Probably, yeah. But, I mean, he was, you know, he was a traveler. He was an expat. Tra he was a traveling poet himself, you know, somewhat. But I hate to... Uh... Pack back to the well, No, I hate to I hate to hold it too harshly against him on some of those things because it is hard to tell what people actually believe. Mm. Yeah, I you know I really do um, think that pound. You know, I mean, like there was the there's the there's the moment. Well, there's like you know, then there, well, the, the, but the especially whole like thing, yeah, there's like the moment. There's I mean, we talk about pound. There's the moment when like Go when like Ginsburg goes to see him, mm. and they have like they have it out. Huh. And Ginsburg's like, what was up with... Like, Ginsburg called him out on it. Yeah. There's, like, this whole thing that happened huh. with that. Wow. I don't know I if you've read about, about that. that. About yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. Ginsburg went to... Um, went to go see him and when he, when he... I think... I'm not too sure if it was, like, while he was still in the United States or if Ginsburg went to Italy to see him right. in Brunnenberg. Right. But like, or wherever or wherever he was living. He was right. living at the time. Right. Where he was living wherever he was living. Huh. I wonder about um, that. In the apartment in Venice or, so, or wherever yeah. it was, I think. Um... That he ended up living because he's because he's he's buried off the coast of Venice. You yeah, know, yeah. Tor, on tour on uh, Torcello. Yeah. But uh, but uh, he but there's a moment where like where Ginsburg calls him on this, you know, yeah. where Ginsburg visits him yeah. and he's like, 
burning incense and smoking pot. Yeah. Like, it's all like, Playing his little accordion thing. That would have been a great yeah. meeting to witness. Why do, you, <laughs> <laughs> like, why do you hate Jews, you know? Like, basically, like, well, you know, it's a suburban, uh, he was like, it's just, a, you know, Pound said something like, I think the quote was like, it's just, you know, my my suburban prejudices, you know. He just, like, brushed it off as, like, this small thing, which it wasn't, you but know. But there's, like, years of his radio broadcast transcripts of, like, you know, <laughs> of course. the Jews are the fucking of course, of course. But, I, but, but... Because he had the audience. On the, but he that's what I was going to say. At the that's same, evil, though. That's some evil well, shit. Well, maybe it's evil, but, I mean, at the same it's time, evil. it's like... And I have no idea. I have no idea. But at the same time, it's like, you're pound... A lot of your other interests are pretty fringe. You're, you could say, possibly, oh, okay, I'm going to appeal to these certain things, and maybe not even something I necessarily believe to try to sell these other things. And I'm not saying that that's not evil, necessarily, yeah. but it's hard to tell how seriously... I, feel like I don't there's know. Some, there's some exoticism <laughs> of like the Italian fascist party or something. Like you know, I mean, there's vestiges of the you know, I mean, Jesus, all that stuff around those coming stuff like that. But you know, if if he had been doing radio broadcasts for the Nazis, I mean, not that different. <laughs> yeah, doing but but I also think that's I also think Nazis, it's weird. I and feel it's like, like his his, his okay, uh, but reputation would be different. But you've been but it's like same. Well, shit. but part of it is 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 you the know? way Italy's treated it. You've been to Italy. Man, you can go visit right side outside of Rome. You don't even have to go outside of Rome. There's plenty of fascist yeah. monuments oh, yeah. all over the place. Oh, yeah. They didn't get rid of that shit. And really they're, they're fine with that. They're like, okay. But, I mean... The police are, like, <laughs> like the last couple weeks, they're hounding all the uh, leftist protesters, I think. But, I mean, you can go... What's the thing right outside of it? Right outside of Rome. And it's, like, the huge... It's kind of insane... The huge marble thing with all the... Oh, my God. I don't know about this. And even, like... No, no, no. But you know what I'm talking about? It's like the big fascist... It's just right outside of Rome. It's like a big fascist, huge monument Mussolini built. It's still there. I mean, it was something that cost... I don't even know. The amount of marble that's involved in the thing. Yeah. And, but... And, you know, all of the Roman monuments that are preserved, it's because Mussolini did it. Not because he gave a shit about Rome, but because it's about power preserving, yeah. oh, the Italian people have this long tradition, and we're going... Where before that, Italy was not preserving any of those Roman monuments, you know? Mm. So they've got a very... Com- there's, there's they've got a complicated relationship with it in a different way than Germany does, where yeah. Germany's like, oh, we're just going to expunge Nazism. Yeah. From the record, Italy's not like that at all. They're like, well, we're going to let that exist in the world for for better or worse. And I think it's both. You know, there's some things that are really negative about that. But some things that are maybe in some ways positive about that. Uh, it's just a compli- It's, But I kind of appreciate it in some ways more than the way Germany dealt with it because it's more complicated. I you know? know, like, you know, <laughs> yeah, in places like Italy or Spain, I mean, there's people, still people, like, hiling Franco in Spain today. Yeah. And it's like, these kind of fascist parties in some of the, yeah, Southern Europe places, it's like, they, it was never really stamped out the way it was in Germany. And there's not, like, the education. But the thing in. is, that stuff was and complicated. But the thing is, that stuff's sure. complicated. <laughs> like, when we, we were Jeez. talking, when we talked, 
when we talked to Mark a couple episodes ago, and he did the translation of the poet who was on the fascist side in Spain, huh. and he got killed. Yep. I mean, he wasn't involved doing anything real with the fascists. He was just writing fascist poetry. Yeah. He got killed by the liberal Spanish for writing oh. fascist poetry. Assassinated? Or- yeah, he oh, got uh, assassinated, you know, yeah. and his family, not just him. You know, it's like, well... That stuff's not as simple as people like to make it, right? Um, there are pretty evil people on both sides when it really comes down to it. And part of it is, yeah, hmm. uh, history gets written by who wins, right? Um, yeah. And a lot of, I mean, most of the time, most people are evil no matter what side you're on. I hate to tell you. <laughs> but <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, so messy. <laughs> yeah, that could be a whole episode, maybe, like, was Pound crazy or fascist, or both? Yeah, <laughs> oh, well, man. it's what probably percent, some complicated crazy, com- combination. He was both crazy and fascist, I think, but... Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I have a hard time just totally denouncing him for it, I mean... Yeah, I, do, I mean, I don't... I'm not to the point of, like, oh, we should not teach pound anywhere we should expunge it from every anthology like that that's not where i'm coming from it's it's more of like i'm kind of coming from like wow what a interesting long life he had where he was this um you know controversial genius but like anti-semitic he was super racist and then he like yeah yeah succumbed to for whatever sequence of reasons like he became this like super evil fascist like radio broadcaster (laughs) you know and then came back to america and kind of like manipulated people a little bit yeah or whatever you know through through sympathies and stuff but yeah pounds a pounds a strange fellow yeah. He is. Better get Indeed. John Geary on. And then you, to, well, uh, and then, I mean, I would, I could spend. Do a couple hours on Pound. I could yeah. do a whole episode just on Pound's translation ideas, which are, are very yeah. interesting. And in some ways also racist, but in some ways so progressive and yeah. presaged modern translation theory. It was ahead of his time as sure. far as what translation meant and what you were, what you wanted to be mm. doing with translation, you know? Yeah. I don't know. He's a complicated fellow. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. Not as not not as much as W. D. Snodgrass is, though. <laughs> I don't know how many episodes we'll be doing on W. D. Snodgrass in the morning. Tells us here the Um. So I think maybe one other thing I thought might be interesting to ask you about is. So you've done so much typewriter poetry. I know that's not the only writing you've done, but there's so much of it. How has that shaped your idea of the role of editing mm. in poetry? I guess I see it as um, I see it as a improvisatory experimental form in, in that um, I don't think everyone should write in that way. I think it's kind of like an experiment where you can achieve certain things because of the restraints that you yeah that you're using. Um, and like any experiment, you know, I don't think I'm going to do it forever. Like, uh, I'm I'm sort of moving away from it now and towards prose. I'm writing a novel, an autobiographical novel, um, about living this life. It's kind of a quasi, uh, autobiographical novel, memoir, kind of nonfiction book. Um, 
about traveling to all these places. Yeah. All the cities sort of become characters in it. And uh, then there's like a personal arc going through it. And it's punctuated throughout the narrative with uh, actual scans of the poems themselves and sort of portraits of um, these people that I meet and what they want from me in different places and how that reflects like uh, the kind of rise of fascism in America and um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I, I, I see myself moving away from it as just, um, yeah, I think the, la- the lack of editing, the inherent lack of editing, to answer your question, is, is something that's like, it's interesting, um, and it can be really wonderful, but it's not something that I want to do, like, forever, you know? So, so, I guess the advantage of it is the constraint. Yeah. For sure, because yeah. you've got to work with what you've got in front of you. I kind of put it in the in the lineage of, like, um, you know, some kind of, so what, like, automatic writing kind of started around the turn of the 20th century, and um, James Joyce and stuff like that, and then, uh, you know, to, like, the Surrealists and the Dadas and they're kind of like... Uh, so maybe like, games and like Desnos or Frank something. Frank O'Hara, the lunch poems. He's like taking the ferry and he writes a poem on the ferry every day or whatever. Yeah, but um, I think he probably had editing, right? But maybe like Desnos or something. Who I don't think... And I think that's a weird thing about Desnos. It's part, both what I like about him and what I sometimes dislike about him. Hmm. Is... I think someone like... Some of the other Surrealists... And I mean, you talk about Frank O'Hara, which is... He's saying he's writing things on the cuff, but I think he really went back and edited things a lot. But someone like Desnos, I think, really, at least in the beginning of his writing, really kind of stuck with what he wrote, right? And he maybe was more true to automatic writing than I think any of the other surrealists were, which is, I think, at the same time, both the charm of his writing, but also the weakness of it at the same time, right? It's a difficult thing. I don't know. Yeah, people liken it to jazz a lot or or hip hop and stuff, but I, I don't really see it as totally analogous to that just because I've I've played jazz and improvised jazz in the trumpet and um like for a living. And I, I just don't see like the brevity of a poem that I write in the street for someone as analogous to like say like a three minute trumpet solo. There's well so and much... I think with music you're yeah. there's a lot more even if you're allowing yourself to walk outside of it you've got a lot more structure to rely on in a certain way than maybe you do with a poem necessarily um but with you know hip-hop freestylers and stuff it is just all you know spontaneous but i think at the same time they must have like a palette of sorts of like images and references and things and it's not that they're planning it out but that they have things to pull from. Sure, of course. And not, I feel the same not way. that you don't you know, with poetry, I but way. I but it seems like maybe the palette you're pulling from with poetry is a lot broader than maybe you have in music to some extent. Yeah. Just because of the nature of musical notes and the nature of language are yeah. very different. It's a very poet thing to say. <laughs> the scope of uh, poetry is so much broader than like musical scope or whatever. Well, I mean, I don't, a musician I, I'm, would be like, man, I can. Say I'm not saying that. Music. Well, I'm not <laughs> saying that as a negative way. I mean, you know, uh, being an amateur musician myself, but hmm. I'm not saying that in a negative way. In fact, in some ways, I think it's nice in music that you have that limited palette to some extent. But hmm. I do feel like it's a more limited palette. Uh, as far as like literal ideas, for sure. You know, it's so much more, like, emotive with music. Like, I mean, you can get emotion from poetry, of course, but 
with with music, it's yeah, you're you're expressing like a well, and maybe like that's a good way to say it. it, it music's not limited in the quality; it's limited in the quantity. Mm. Where I think language is maybe unlimited in both quality and quantity. Mm. Right? Um, is the more complicated thing. Maybe it's not unlimited in quantity, but the quantity is much larger than the quantity is in music. Uh, it reminds me of like uh, you know. Because sometimes when you listen to, like, some far-out jazz, uh, there's this element of, like, at, on its face it sounds like... But if you sort of kind of lay back and... I mean, that was, right? That was, yeah, that was pretty good. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, but if you kind of lay back and really focus on it and almost, like, visualize what's happening in front of you, then it you can kind of construct all these things if you, like, really focus on it. Like, you can yeah, kind of construct yeah. images even though there are no images at all. And it, that reminds me of um, John Ashbery a little bit, who I, like, <laughs> hate so much. And then I listened to your show about John Ashbery, and because um, I just, I, like, had some time and I was listening to it, and uh, maybe the music element of it helped or something, but I was letting those images, like, flow over me. Maybe it helped that it was being spoken as opposed to seeing it on the page. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. But I let it flow over me and I was kind of visualizing these words like constructing images in front of my mind that would then, as soon as they appeared, they would disappear and be replaced by some other image. And I was like, whoa, I kind of started to get it and I got that it wasn't about getting it or something. It was kind of about experiencing these... No, I think that's a or, good comparison and it's weird, right? Like, I don't know how to explain that to someone. Like, I, I mean, there's so yeah. many people who hate free jazz, right? Yeah. Well, I hated John Ashbery so well, much. Well, okay, but yeah. I still do. But well, it's yeah, maybe yeah. a same, similar yeah. thing, but right. There's so many people who hate free jazz just as, a, yeah. as an idea. And to me, it's like, well, some of it's awesome and some of it does suck. Like, yeah. And but it's really difficult for me to explain to you why some of it's good and why some yeah, of it's not yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You know when you see it. What is it? The definition like, of pornography. I, yeah. You know it when you see it. I don't know how to tell you the difference, and it is about that quality idea, right? It's not a, it's not a quantitative thing. It's like, yeah, you're right. I mean, I mean, you could. <laughs> You could really have someone doing very similar things, and one be really good and one be terrible, mm. and it's so much about that emotive quality of it, or, or or how they're getting from one place to another, which is really difficult to create. I mean, it's not like I could create some rubric of saying, getting this is a good way to get from one place to another, and this is a shitty way, but... If you're kind of versed in that idea, yeah, you can tell the par- tell them apart. Can I, can I, sure, because because that's like that's like um, no no no. I mean, I, I I think that that's you know okay. The the way I come to that is like you know we okay we live in New Orleans now. There's a there's a particular okay. We know that there's particular types of jazz here, right? It's like you know it's the you don't see you don't okay. We don't hear a lot of free jazz here. I don't think, in general. There's some. There's some. Okay. Yeah, there's, there's some. There's some that exist. There used to be more than there is yeah, now. There's, there's less years. than there. There's many years. Right, right, right. There's, there's less than there used to be. Okay, Ace Hotel has a yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. So there's some of it, right? Yeah. But overall, we're 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 trad, and overall, we're it's contemporary. 
brass band music, yeah. trad. We have a very particular type of New Orleans, yeah. Yeah, Dixieland. Yeah. Okay, we have this yeah. thing, right? Yeah. So, okay, I grew up in Cleveland, and, you know, before I moved here, I had a space, and we, we did a lot of noise and yeah. jazz. And I think that what it came down to, understanding, like, free jazz, and a lot, like, a lot of these jazz cats in Cleveland were jazz incredibly cats. well listened yeah. to. They right. they knew like yeah. every Coltrane record. They They're knew well all read. the Eiler stuff. They knew yeah. they were well read in their jazz catalogs. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of these people would like go out and stand on the lake on a, on a rock and just play yeah. their saxophone. Yeah. And, and I think like for me, the difference between bad free jazz and good free jazz was like familiarity with instrument, ability to 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 be able to do extended technique that was like, oh, that guy's been, you know, you could just mm. tell that they were playing for a long time and knew what their instrument could do. And you're right, Joseph, it did have a lot to do with the um, sort of like the emotional uh, sort of like roller coaster they would take you through yeah, in any yeah. given performance. And, you know, and, 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 and you would, and, and, and it was like, um, you know, uh, you, it's like, I think like the free jazz thing, you can't just, you can't just become, you can't just pick up a trumpet, trumpet, and being like, and and be like, oh, I'll be a free jazzer. You can't Unless start. Unless your name is uh, who was the sax player who did that? Uh, the plastic trumpet that he used. Oh, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. Okay. God. So there was somebody. Okay. Yeah. But I'm saying but, like I don't know. It's you usually you have to like you have to you have to really learn the rules of jazz and understand yeah. scales and understand how yeah. music works. Yeah. And, and in a theoretical way yeah. before you can kind of break the rules to do this sort of extended technique free well, jazz shit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and so like, no, and that, that is a big part of it, which, which I, I didn't say, but that's part of it, right? Because if you recognize that, you know, knowing when you're diverging and when you're following mm. tradition is kind of important even if that doesn't matter necessarily, it sort of does matter at the same time. Not not whether you're doing it or whether you're not, but knowing the difference between when you're doing it and when you're not. Mm. Yeah, and, and that, that, <laughs> that immediately makes me think that, like, Buddy Bolden knew what he was doing. Oh, I think he totally did, yeah. Like, in yeah, those cut-up sessions, totally did, you know, yeah. in the park yeah. with Robichaux, yeah. where, where Bolden's doing a little bit of a hotter thing or a little bit of a crazier thing, and people are just going crazy over it, you know? It yeah. wasn't just the schizophrenia that that, yeah. that that brought it out of him, but, you know, it's like there's this huge debate about, like, that idea of jazz, too, and its birth and its origins of coming out of brass band music and, like, this whole yeah. idea of, like, oh, Bolden was this, like, hot trumpet player. He's, like, he invented jazz. Like, no, there, nobody invented jazz, you know? It was, like, it was like an echoing of sounds and, like, uh, an extended, like, wow, you can take this musical instrument and you can do all this other what? stuff with and the, it. And the genius part is where he expanded from it, but that wouldn't have been genius if you didn't know what you were expanding out of. Sure. You know? And that's hard, though. But li but listening to something, it's hard to tell that necessarily yeah. unless you're really versed in that shit. And I think it's the same with poetry, but yeah. yeah. What were you going to say, man? Yeah. Well, to, to bring it back to improvisatory poetry, I was going to ask you something because you seem like a John Ashbery... I like Ashbery, yeah. Someone told me, maybe it was Carolyn Hembry or someone, that his process involved at least one point, like, he would write a hundred poems improvisatorily, and he would pick one, 
And then that's the one yeah. he would like send yeah. out, and then he would collect all those into a book. Yeah, or is that true? Or I think that is true. Because yeah, that's improvisation I've heard right that. There. Yeah, like, I've heard that. Well, and 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 we were talking about the surrealists, and I think most of the surrealists. I think Desnos is an exception. He didn't mm-hmm. do that. But if you talk about Breton, for instance, for instance, Breton, even in the early days when he was espousing this idea of free art writing and espousing this idea of letting stuff kind of sit as it was. Mm-hmm. He wasn't really doing that. He was editing heavily, if you look at those manuscripts. Yeah. And, yeah, he was using that as a generative technique, but he was yes. still going back in and picking out, like, kind of like you're talking about with yeah. Ashbury, of picking, like, well, this yeah. is the best stuff. Yeah. I'm not just, it's not like all of this is good. Like, I've got to, I still got to go back and pick this stuff out. And, and you talk about, you talk about the beats in the same way, and yeah. you talk about that, like, first thought, best thought. They didn't really believe that. Like, if you start looking at their manuscripts, most of them... I know, there's such a misconception you know, that Jack Kerouac just wrote On the Road in three weeks, and then it was published. And he actually spent, like, eight torturous years, like, being rejected from every single publisher and, like, revising it, revising it, revising yeah. it forever. Didn't yeah. he type it on a giant scroll of paper? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was he, on, it was on display he, recently. He walked into the office and unrolled it along the carpet and was like, publish my book. And they're like, no. Nah. <laughs> Get out of here, kid. Get out of here, kid. Yeah. Only because Ginsburg got yeah. famous. Did he, uh... But I mean, I mean, that's the thing. And I think we're all, as writers and what whatever you're doing, as visual artists, as as musicians, whatever you're trying to do, it's always finding that balance, right? I mean... You want to have the freewheeling aspect of it because if you don't have that, it's stale and boring. Yeah. But you also, at some point, always there has to be, and there's again a scale of how much editing and how little editing. But there's always some editing, I think, for anything good. Yeah. Or for the people where there's no editing, then those are the people where you're like, I really like this, but this shit's stu- shit, you mm-hmm. know. And it's like you've got. If you yeah. want to be consistently good, there's got to be some editing process, maybe. Yeah. I mean, it's not the same for everybody. Some people it's yeah. less editing, and some people it's more. It just kind of depends yeah. on what yeah. you're doing, I think. But um, A friend of mine who's a poet who's obsessed with Ashbury asked me for a poem. Uh-huh. And I wrote it in the style of Ashbury. Okay. All right. Yeah, 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 let's hear it. Let's hear it. She paid for it. This is Aaron Donovan. She's a really wonderful poet. Um and she paid for it with a go cup full of strawberries. And she said, uh, she didn't ask for an Ashbury poem. She asked, for, I just know that she loves Ashbury. Um, she said it should have chandeliers and the river and there's some other item in there. Mirrors or something. And so this is what I wrote for her. It's called Ashburyismo. Let's go for a stroll to the river, ejaculated Diane. And though you have beheld the river so very many placid occasions, your voice box makes that sound again, that Waterloo, yes, yes, let's, stirring in your throat. You admire Diane for her chandelier, so many crystal wishes lucid in the half-light, but you bolt to the bathroom mirror and tell it, you puppy mueller, the river, naufrageur, the word a throat, chicken-boned, her chandelier tinkle tinkling the syllables of your name on the other side of the fortress door. <laughs> you for, think that's Ashbury? Or? For someone who says Ashbury? that he does not like Ashbury, you hit certain vocabulary that he likes to use. No pressure. Like, well, I don't, I 
don't know that one. obscure French word in but, there? Like, no, but half light. Oh, man. really? I don't oh, know. Okay. He uses that all the time. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah. Just once in a while, the New Yorker has like an Ashbury poem, and I hate read it. And well, so like, anytime know. the New Yorker has a poem by anyone, it is the worst poem they've ever written, is my opinion. <laughs> even, everyone Except I for even Bill Hickok. Oh man, that Bill Hickok poem. There. Well, I don't know. I have to see. <laughs> I I really. I mean, and this has been decades long for me. I feel like even poets that I like that get published in the New Yorker, I'm like, you have every time it's like you've literally published the worst poem I've ever read by that person. B Meeker's was awesome. <laughs> B Meeker's poem in there, great. <laughs> Really fantastic. What's that? Didn't read a year it. ago or something? Oh, yeah. so good. Check it out. I think they have her reading it on their website or something, too. Someone yeah. needs to get... New Yorker, if you're listening, you are most certainly not. Jesus Christ, hire a poetry editor that knows what the fuck they're doing. This is two in a row who are incompetent as fuck. Well, they got a new guy now. <laughs> Kevin, Kevin Young's doing it. So yeah. So maybe, maybe there'll be a... Maybe there'll be like a change. We'll it's see. hard to discern. It's hard to discern like... Uh, change but maybe maybe they have a backlog that they're still doing like it's hard to even know if it's still Paul Muldoon or if it's right yeah I wonder yeah I wonder where the transition happened it's hard to tell that was I remember that was a big that was a big thing when the, the Paris Review changed oh, yeah. editors, and they just rejected everyone they accepted because they were like new editors coming well, in like starting they, over they don't, yeah. don't want to put their stamp on your poetry so like I know we accepted you but you're no longer gonna appear Sure. You no, know, it's been two years. We're sorry, but like <laughs> that's kind of shitty if you're that's accepted. So shitty. But... I think you should you sign a contract or something. Like fuck, you have to honor that. You know. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird though, but I, mean, I don't if know. If you don't sign a contract, like if some magazine tells you, if it was someone, if it was someone smaller, I'd be more upset about that. But it's like Paris for you, Paris New Yorker. For you, it it's might like make your career. You know. Uh, certainly, back in the day, it would have. I don't know. Today, I don't think yeah, the Paris for you so has much. the same clout that it used to have. Yeah, but. uh yeah, maybe not. But, I don't know. But New Yorker, I think I would be embarrassed to get a poem published in the New Yorker. Come on. No, I really wouldn't. Shut because up. I have not Stop seen, it. I haven't seen a good poem in the New Yorker in like years. I'm a subscriber. No I'm going to tell you this right now. You'd I'm a subscriber. to be in the New Yorker? I would. No way. Because that's, no I just, their poetry's awful at this point. Even people I like, even people who are good poets, it's just awful. They pick such shitty there's poetry. Some, once in a while, there's some, this is, I think their, this is their modus operandi. And this is my theory about it is that they publish, like, 80 90%, like, really terrible poems. But then they'll have a good one here and there, and it keeps you hooked. You know, Man, they're, like, not, they're not publishing enough of those good like ones to me. You're chasing dragon. <laughs> you not tell me, you're a subscriber, every single time you get the New Yorker, you flip to the poet, poetry, right? I look, of course. Yeah, I look. You buy but it. But that's also because I'm a poet. It. I want to see if they've got a good one. But I would say, in reality... If it was great every single time, you might not flip to it No, I certainly would. I'd be more excited if it was great every time. But I would say, if I'm going to be... Scarcity. If I'm going to be honest about the scarcity, the scarcity (laughs) is about one poem out of every 30 issues that I'm like, oh, this is good. That's about the level that it's at, which is too scarce. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Maybe if they were doing that, maybe if it was like a... Every other issue, there was one good poem. I'd be happy with that. Here and there, they have some really great stuff. For a while, <laughs> I, I cut out and carried around in my wallet this uh, Bob Hickok poem about 
the crying bench and running into the fire and carrying the fire safely out. And it's just like, yeah, I'll just slaughter you. And I would meet other people and talk about that poem and they would take their wallet out and unfold it. And I would be like, no way. And I would take my wallet yeah, out yeah, and unfold yeah. it. And I was like, oh man. like. But the thing is like, their fiction's much better. And I mean, admittedly, it's still okay. the New Yorker. Frequently, I don't like the I feel fiction. Like Dragon New Yorker is so. It's Frequently, like I don't like the fiction. Or something but like but that. if I'm going to compl- compare the percentage of hits on fiction compared to percentage of poetry, fiction's much better. It, the editor yeah. for fiction is much better. Yeah, doing a better job. Do you know, really cool stuff. where poetry, it's like Jesus Christ. I don't know, man. I feel like it's easier. <laughs> I think there's a thing with poets, though. Like we hate that which we don't have or whatever. Like if they publish one of your poems like i think you would be super psyched and like everyone that you know would be really happy for you and it would it would probably be this wonderful people thing would be happy because it's a big publication but i i would just be i i, I guarantee you well i mean first of all i would never submit to the new yorker but even if i did somehow it's free why not if it got if it got published that would immediately make me think this must be a shitty poem because that's mostly what gets published in the New Yorker. I've, I've gone through, I've gone through the emotions of like, you know, I like I used to have like a, just a visceral, visceral hatred. But I think part of that was because I hate I hated it because I saw it as something that I would I would never be included in or something, and so it was so easy to hate it. And I also saw it as something that it didn't matter what I write, it didn't matter if it was good or not, because they only like pick their friend or whatever to be in it. But then two years ago, I had this experience where yeah, at Breadloaf. Um, one of the other waiters there was an editor at the New Yorker. Yeah, and I, well, yeah, I brought I'm, this up. Yeah. I was very honest with her, and I was like, you know, yeah, I love the New Yorker, but it's like it makes me kind of angry. You know, the idea that I'm just not really going to be read by them, and blah blah blah, and they just kind of pick whoever is hot a la mode at the moment or something. And uh, she, she basically like, she kind of like snapped, snapped to me and was like, oh my god. We, I love finding things in the slush pile. Like she got so sincere, and she was like, "You have no idea. Like we read everything, and we really, really want to." Well, I'm find sure that's in there. true. Like, yeah, I'm sure that's know? true. And I was yeah. totally blown away with that by that because I, I really didn't expect her to say that. I expected her to commiserate with me and say, "Yeah, I, I don't really have a lot of power. With, you know, it's just it is what it is, or whatever." But she was like, "No, oh my god! Like I, I have personally championed things from the slush pile that no one else would listen to, and blah blah blah." And I was like, oh my God, there are really people like kind of their day job is like trying to find the diamond in the rough and maybe they fail sometimes and they publish something that's not good or whatever. But it's like, you know, I was really blown away by by that because I had a very cynical, I had, I was operating on an extremely cynical basis. I don't think I'm being cynical about it though. I just think they publish shitty poetry. And and (laughs) part of it is my, uh, I think you should try, you know, my my part of it is my own, uh, psychological problems even lesser magazines when i get accepted that's my first thought like oh my god this must be terrible they accepted this poem that must mean that it's a really bad poem that sounds like a much deeper that sounds like a maybe like a deeper psychological thing going on or something yeah well that's what i just said i recognize that i've recently I doubt they would publish any of your Catullus Joseph. So, you know, don't done, send them any of that. I, they'd be more likely to publish that than my own poetry. <laughs> I, like, I, I basically came of age as a poet as like an extreme, just hatred of the establishment across the board. 
even though, you know, I did start publishing and stuff, but I, 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 I loathed everything that I wasn't a part of, like I loathed or whatever. And I, I think it's like this poet ego thing. And there's so many things that I never submitted to because I pre-assumed that I just would be rejected. And, and recently, really, since talking to that New Yorker editor yeah. and to seeing my um, good friend Jenna Rose Nethercott, who you should have on the show if you haven't already, but no, um, yeah. she won the National Poetry Series and she, she had never been published in anything. And, yeah, uh, and I maybe mean, a small online thing here and there. I, I agree She submitted you, yeah. her thing, she, she, you know, and they, they read it, and they were like, this is it. This is the one. And my, my good friend Nathan Hawks, who his his book got selected for the National Poetry Series, too, which I always thought was impossible, and he was yeah, one of my old friends. Too. And I was always like, yeah. It's not impossible. And like, I was like, well. The only thing that is a certain, it has totally inspired me, because I was like, oh, my God, like, I haven't even tried. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. don't be mad until you try and miserably fail or whatever, and then be like mad and stuff or whatever. But it, but also it's like, you know, people that succeed in those kinds of things, usually it's not that random occurrence where they like succeed. Usually it's like years and years of failure, like sometimes decades of failure or whatever. And you just, it seems so random to me, honestly, fail better yeah, or whatever. Seems, honestly, you trying yeah, and then, like, it seems kind of random. Some, some things it is people who've been pushing hard. Some people it's not, it's just it does seem strange. Random. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. strange. Um, but yeah, no, I don't know. Well, wow, Jesus, we've gone a long time. That's fine. We've got a lot of interesting discussion. Yeah, maybe I'll read one more. Um, and yeah, as far as travel goes, right now, I mean, I'm I'm trying to set up a tour right now. For years, I've been trying to go to the the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Oh, nice! So I think it's going to work out the this original. year in like August. Yeah, the original. And uh, probably try to go to Paris and London, and then go up there. Um, those are my basic plans. Kind of probably do a reading or two in New York, like on my way there. Like I try to patch things together that way. Um, but uh, yeah, is there a certain topic you want to hear about? Yeah, let's hear a love poem. <laughs> sure. This is kind of a tortured love poem. That's um, tortured love. It just came out in the new issue of Neon Magazine in Germany. Um, and they, this is really funny, but we're talking about the stereotypical like cultural things. And, like, the Germans, the, the stereotype is that they're just, like, super attention to detail. And they, so the, the title of the poem is Amour Propre, which is, like, a play on words from Amour Propre, like, kind of self-love or self-respect in French. But Amour is armor. So it's, like, one's own armor. And the context of the poem is that there was this French girl in Paris who, who was selling ice cream by the shop, and uh, she asked for this poem because she said she'd just broken up with her boyfriend um, of, like, you know, many years or something. Um, everything was going really great. Uh, he was he was German, actually, and he, he had just been driving across Europe, and she met him somewhere and invited him home, and he just kind of, like, stayed, and they fell in love. And uh, But then um, he was very jealous, and then uh, one day he hit her, you know, he like punched her or something. He struck yeah. her, and uh, that was when she she knew that was that was it. Like she couldn't she couldn't deal with that anymore, and so she wanted kind of this like ode to the kind of uh, bygone you know situation or whatever. And so I called the armor group like one's own armor. Uh, and in the new issue of Eon of Neon Magazine, they changed it back to Amour, 
which is like uh, kind of cliche, you know, amour propre, like love, oneself, love. They were like, oh, he he must mean amour, you know? And I was like, ah, but anyway. Um, what struck me wasn't lightning, not a coup de food. What struck me wasn't that I gave you shelter one night and you stayed for seven moons because we both know I loved you. What struck me was you. What struck me was that you struck me, that of all the ways you learned to touch me, you found the one that turns me to stone. And uh, we were talking about like the power of poetry earlier, and the reason I read that one is because uh, after I gave it to her, you know, we both kind of like burst out crying and everything, and she started confessing that she had never broken up with him, and that she was living in terror of him and that he wouldn't leave her house, and that she was afraid to go home, and she didn't know how to get rid of him, and that she didn't know she, like, had to end it until she read that poem. And, uh, you know, obviously that's not the kind of thing, that's not the kind of experience that I would have, like, with anyone. You know, <laughs> like, sometimes I, I would totally fail to make that sort of connection or something, but in that instance it did work or whatever. And so she left kind of, like, you know, resolved to finally like end it and I talked to her later and she said she did and everything and um I think that's another example of just like why I even do this at all you know this power of like the potential connection with someone and we were talking about the drafts and, or the curation of it and it's like if I've written 10,000 of these poems and there's like 60 of them in here you know it's like it is very much this curation project and like constant failure you know, or not necessarily failure, like people usually enjoy what I give them, but they, they don't always receive like something that moves them to their core or whatever you want to call it, you know? Um, well, I guess that is the nice thing about it is whatever might come out of it as a product. Yeah. It probably breaks down some boundaries for people who normally have some pretty tight boundaries. I think the potential of it is what... It's so fascinating for me, definitely. I think a lot of people, they have like really low expectations, so they don't necessarily have like some romantic hope that it will be like some wonderful poem. But uh, maybe people do have that kind of romantic hope, you know? <clears throat> yeah. And I see the troubadours as sort of proto-romanticists, you know, what? Yeah. Eight, 800 years before the romantics, they were kind of like striving for something that they would never attain. And that was what was so sublime about it. Like uh, Geoffrey Rudel... I think his name was, he was like one of the famous ones. He, um, he heard stories from pilgrims coming from Tripoli about the beauty of this princess there. So he writes her all these poems without ever having met her. And then he goes there. He like goes on a ship. He goes over land. He goes over a ship. He arrives there. But by the time he gets there, he's like taken ill and he's like sick and he's dying. And he finally gets a, you know, um, audience with her and she, he's, like, so feeble and pale and stuff, and she, like, takes him in her arms, and then he just dies, like, having finally seen her. And, like, they, but she sort of falls in love with him and, like, puts the veil on as if they were, like, lovers and stuff, and her lover had died. And uh, that's sort of that kind of, like, proto-romantic kind of thing of, like, um, striving for the, what do you call it, striving for the infinite or whatever, striving for something even though you will not attain it. You know, well, talk about. And then she read the poems and they talk were all about, shit. Yeah. 
<laughs> talk about life in a talk about life imitating send art. Send in the juggler. Though, too, you know? <laughs> send in the juggler. Yeah. But life imitating art, right? Yeah. The constraints yeah. make it more beautiful than it would be yeah. without the constraints, right? You know? So much we could talk about. <laughs> I, w- I was going to go off on this thing about there was like this real distinction between the jongleur and the troubadour. And the troubadour, yeah, yeah. Like the jongleur was just like, like clowns the jester, yeah, in the yeah. court, just like fucking around or whatever. Or and some the of them did. Were like the yeah. verse writers. But some of them did poetry, but it wasn't their own poetry, yeah. right? Yeah, it was like other people's poetry. Yeah, that's I a different see thing. Such yeah. a connection to like the charlatans on Royal Street. They're well, jongleur. Yeah. They're jongleur. They're not like. Well, or you want to talk about musicians in the world as the ones who are just doing the covers of the stuff tourists want to hear, opposed to the people doing their own material. That's a very yeah, different thing stuff. too. They know? get trapped in that too. Uh, on, they get trapped in that because yeah. they are performing for the tourists yeah. and they want to do what gets the money. And yet, they might have an old flavor from their own place where they're from, but they assimilate to the New Orleans thing. And we talk about what this. Mark saying production the, creates demand, or production creates demand. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. uh, in this case, it seems that the demand creates the production. But well, yeah, well, we but a lot of times it's not true. A lot of times, the people who are like "fuck what they want," mm-hmm. I'm going to do my own thing, are the ones who make the most money, really, because yeah. yeah, there's plenty. That part of it's just like, are you? clever are you attuned to what's interesting in your world because there's plenty of people i've known who don't have any background who don't have anything and are better than the people with the fucking background or better than the people with the there's people who i mean maybe (laughs) maybe i can say the best people are the people who hit some overlap but maybe not because there's some people who are great who have no yeah. No, nothing, yeah. nothing backing any of that up. That they just are clever, and they just know. They just are are attentive to the small yeah. amount of things that they know. Right. All right. So, how are we going to end this thing? Um, <laughs> I, I want to end with another quote with a quote from this troubadour poem. Because, yeah, this book I'm writing, a lot of it is kind of about uh, the rise of fascism in America and around the world, and. Um, yeah, kind of this apocalyptic kind of mentality. The seas are rising, the species are disappearing, like blah, blah, blah. And uh, the the last troubadour, this guy, Guiro Riquet, um, was kind of cynical as he watched uh, all the other troubadours either being, like, assassinated or dying from the plague or becoming kind of more jongleurs or whatever. And he got really cynical. And uh, sometimes I feel myself cynical. I'm not trying to say I'm the last, like, troubadour or something like that. But I'm interested in this, and uh, because one of his last poems says, um, "All that once engendered praise from the memory has died. Now the world is mostly lies." Was the end of one of his poems, and uh, you know I'm totally fine ending it on this like horrible note or something. But it kind of goes back to you know the fake news poem and things like that. Um, I see all these connections, and that's kind of what I'm working on right now, like in prose, but about poetry. All right, Ben Elsher, the last troubadour. Oh, no. <laughs> I couched that shit saying that's not what I meant. The last cynic. The last cynic. I even declared that was not what I was Yeah, thanks, guys. This yeah, thank amazing. you for joining yeah, us for tonight. On, this is like, we, we really span a lot here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. See you all again next week. Yeah.